Talking planets, cosmic killers, and vegetable Jesus. Welcome to Marvel vs. Marvel. It's a podcast where a comedian who's never read a Marvel comic book before in his life checks out a Marvel movie or a Marvel TV show and then quizzes another comedian, this one who was taught to read on Marvel comics. Together we explore the ins and outs of the Marvel journey from page to screen. Hello and welcome to the latest episode, which is Guardians of the Galaxy 2. I'm one of your hosts, I'm Rob Halden, I'm a comedian, I'm a writer, and I am the Marvel expert part of the equation, joined on this Marvel journey, his Marvel journey really, it's Mr. Will Preston. It's my Marvel journey, no one else's, all of you are overstayed guests, basically. (laughs) Can I just confirm that you're still powered by ignorance? Indeed I am, it's written on my chest. (laughs) (laughs) very first uh, show we're able to do with our very own marvel versus marvel merchandise t-shirts which is very cool but have you will preston since the last time we spoke ever read a marvel comic book in your life wait not in wait well we know that bit have you since the last time we spoke ever and ever's the word that's tripping in the last lifetime yeah that's the one in the last lifetime of yours because you are doctor who (laughs) in the last seven days of your life have you read a marvel comic nope then the format is intact. Unless Sandman counts, but that's DC, isn't it? It does not. It does not. not. He's still an ignorant boy, and we're still on his ignorant Marvel journey. Hashtag no gatekeeping. Very excited. I love, I mean, I guess technically summer started at the end of March or something, but I always feel that June is the real start of summer. April, these things don't quite feel like it. Uh, but, But June, really, I feel like it's the sexy summer months are beginning. They're here. June, July, and August. There's an extra bit of kick in everything that we do. We've got so many fun things planned. Um, uh, and this is this episode is no exception. Coming up, we go behind the scenes on the Guardians of the Galaxy 2 movie. We go behind the page on the comic book team that inspired the MCU. We learn about Ego, the living planet, Yondu, and his great, 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 grandfather, Nebula, Gamora, their relationship, and we explore the truly insane history of Mantis. None of you are ready for this one. Don't go anywhere. What an episode we've got for you today. I'm pumped, Will. I'm excited. And some of that might be the fact that we've had very cool experiences with our uh, off-world tease guys with the new Marvel vs. Marvel merch. Um, But you're pumped and excited as well, and you're taking your excitement up and down the land. Up and down this fair land (laughs) of ours. Up and down this fair land, yes. Where can we find you if we want to see you performing... Uh, stand-up comedy. Comedy, as we say in uh, that London, because we're very poncy. Uh, Monday the 6th of June, I'm at Mates Rates uh, at Outlook in Reading. On the Wednesday the 8th of June, I'm at Comedy Cow at the Two Brewers in Olney. Uh, on Thursday the 9th, uh, I am taking part in the gong show The Blackout at Up the Creek in uh, Greenwich, which I'm not looking forward to because I don't like gong shows, but I put myself up to it. And June, uh, Thursday of June the 16th, <clears throat> I'm performing my solo show, Will Preston Can't Face Reality, as part of Hastings Comedy Festival at Ye Old Pump House at 10pm. If you're in Hastings, come check me out then. 
get yourselves down there to that, guys. I'm someone who's been involved um, in, in nascent uh, start of the of the uh, Will Press and Can't Face reality show. That's um, been a, a great process to be partly, you know, involved in a little bit here and there with Will. I got to see it at the um, Leicester Comedy Festival. Had a rip roaring time there. So I 100% recommend you all get down and see that as Will Preston dives into geek things and life things at the same time. Indeed. On Friday the 17th of June, uh, I'm going to be in Oxford at the Castle for a club if you'd like to go, which is the longest comedy club name I've encountered yet. And finally, on Saturday the 18th of June, I'll be at Comedy Mash uh, in Folkestone at Bar Invicta. So (coughs) check me out there. There used to be a gig in uh, Leicester called Lionsy Ice Cream, which I thought was a long, uh, a long, um, a long club name. And of course, that that is the old child's kind of like mnemonic for how to spell Leicester correctly: Lions eat, eat. ice cream. And no. I always, yeah, yeah, it's that way around: L E I C. Um, oh, that's good. I like that. So I always use that. Whenever I'm typing out Leicester, I remember that old gig, and I always go to the Lions Eat Ice Cream Leicester comedy. I always type that out like that. Um, if you know, uh, just explain to those who aren't on the comedy circuit, Will Preston, what is a gong show? Oh, God. A gong show is basically... <laughs> He's so excited about it! <laughs> no, no, because I've done a few of them, and I have beaten this one before three times. But I'm just, it, it, it's a matter of chance. You can be really good and still get gonged off. Basically, the idea is there are loads of comedians and they've each got to basically last five minutes. And in the audience, uh, three random members of the audience are given three red cards. If they don't like you, if all three, they'll raise, a, raise their card. If all three cards go up, you are gonged off stage. But with Up the Creek, the blackout, you get a two minute grace period to win them over. But. Man, if you're at a gong show and you start off bad, it's just such a painful well, I, feeling. I've done and won uh, um, King Gong at the Comedy Store and also um, uh, Beat the Frog at, at the Frog and Bucket. I think they even I think they both, which which were the major ones back in the day when I'm an old man, but even mm. they had a 30 second uh, grace period. I believe you couldn't get gonged off from people not liking the look of you, which does happens at. at, at Disreputable outfits. There's King Gong in London that pretty much you can pretty much that happens at. Which is no, it's the com- no, it's the comedy store. The comedy store had a, well, I mean, they must have changed the rules again. That's it. There was thirty second grace period. Uh, fair, they must have changed it. There are some there are some new ones that have come 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 up that look absolutely awful. I won't name them. <laughs> well, check out Will Preston's website for more info. What's your URL, William? Just go will-preston.co.uk or just tie my name into Google because if you do that, my name gets higher in the searches and there's this other oh. guy called Will Preston who's a soul singer and he keeps beating me every now and again and it's like a weird race. Weird race. Coming around your house and beating you? Yeah, he, 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 while he, singing his soul's tune, it's very calming <laughs> but threatening at the same time. You know, we're this, sat here. Sorry, it's sexy I thought but you were threatening. Done. It's sexy, it's but, sexy threat- but threatening. Should, I'm going to put that in a t-shirt for you. <laughs> Will Preston, sexy but threatening, folks. We're sat here right now in our Marvel versus Marvel merchandise, which launches right, it was launched at the start of this month in June. Offworldtees.com slash MVM. That's how to get there. Um, we've just, we're just so excited. I, I'm, I, I just, I really, it's brilliant. It's, I'm as giddy as I was for the live show, which is another project we didn't think we'd ever be able to do. 
Um, we put these together with off-world tees, and it's a great, great, great kind of setup we've got with them for the next couple of months. All sizes, all ages, all kinds of fits for your frame are available, and these t-shirts are available wherever you are in the world. One of the big, big plus points of us working with off-world tees is that they've got production hubs all over the world. If we were to just work with a, a company here in the UK or a company in America, like one set of our listeners would be ordering from a whole other country and waiting ages and ages and ages for this delivery and probably paying all sorts of extra additional shipping fees and tax and things. You know, we have to pay customs when it comes through here, which mm. is really annoying when I've ordered stuff from, you know, T-shirts from America and it's the only place you can get them. So by working with Off-World Tees, they've got partners all across the globe, which means that wherever you are, you're going to go to get hold of these in a relatively nice and easy fashion. We've got two designs our amazing Marvel versus Marvel MVM speech bubble logo, which I'm wearing right now, which was designed by um, Peter J and Will, which he's wearing his special, his own slogan upon his chest, Will Pressed Empowered by Ignorance. Um, <laughs> Another, both designs done by Peter J, uh, one of our biggest, biggest supporters and a very artistic dude. Um, and then Offworld Tees perfected the design. What I absolutely loved when we first had mm. these designs, um, the logo that, that Peter J came up with, which is two speech bubbles with the MVM, we handed it over um, to the guys at Offworld Tees, and what came back was colour dotting on the on the V in the middle, right? This might not mean anything to a lot of people. I showed it to my sister and she said, oh yeah, like pop arts, the mm. colour dotting. Well, yeah. that all comes from how comic books used to be printed. So when you bought comic books in the 70s, I've got loads of them from the, from the old days, 70s and sometimes into the 80s, the, the, the way that the colouring was done was using a dot um, system. Yeah. And in, 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 in cheaper printing presses, you could see the dots in all the colours. That was, we didn't, we didn't have to or mention that. Offworld Tees, Jim, the designer over there, he knows comic books, he knows pop art, he knows cool stuff. He came up with that and just added it that to the colouring. Like, mwah, what a perfect, glorious bit of geek knowledge applied at the last minute by those guys. <laughs> um, indeed, I mean, me and Will. Both tested the system out to make sure that it all works smoothly. The ordering system, we weirdly bought our own T-shirts <laughs> to make sure everything was going to work well, like, and that you guys would get a good experience. There were no gremlins in the machine, and it all went very smoothly. Very. Um, for me, there's a great size guide, which I urge everyone to use because you don't want to get the wrong size. Um, just make sure that the fit is right. Um, it was a very simple process i paid uh, using paypal um to get my shirts they arrived a week later which is pretty standard outside of amazon shirts look great feel great the sizes my i had two different sizes and they were both true to the size guide which is really really cool mm. if it's um, like a glove it's great i couldn't be happier man what about you I, i'm really happy i mean i'm not only happy I'm, I've, you know i've got my own merchandise but the other things i ordered came out great i mean I did take a risk by ordering a Resident Evil t-shirt in grey instead of black, but it kind of looks okay. I, I, I did that because I just had too many black t-shirts. and thought, Too many black shirts. Too many black shirts, and I went, no. it's 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 so awesome like to be able to wear these cool shirts when mm. we're recording the show, when I'm watching Marvel movies, reading Marvel comics. So excited. Uh, I know you guys are going to love them. They're only available for a limited, limited time. We've got a really cool deal with Off-World Tees, but right now these are only available... June and July so make sure you get hold of yours while you still can you've got until the very end of July 
offworldtees.com slash mvm so offworldtees is offworld and then t-e-e-s for the tees offworldtees.com slash mvm Join me now into the uh, the twisted, muggly mind of a man who's never read a Marvel comic book before in his life. A man that represents the overwhelming majority of Marvel fans in this dear day and age. Um, I think we, it's, it's, it's not much of a stretch to say the vast majority of Marvel fans love a TV show, they love a cartoon, they, they love uh, the Disney stuff, or they love the, the movies and may never have ever gone near a Marvel comic and so I like to check in with Mr. Will Preston. Um, I believe when we first talked about the Guardians of the Galaxy, you'd never heard of any of these characters. Uh, no, the I, I heard of none of them. None, absolutely no one in this film rung a bell. And they 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 had made a couple of appearances. They they turned up. This specific team had turned up in the one of my favorite favorite marvel projects of all time avengers earth mightiest heroes mm. um they had one episode uh and that i believe um but by i mean I, it'd be nice to dive into your mind then po what did you think coming out of when a sequel was announced you know were you excited for guardians of the galaxy 2 like you were excited for another avengers movie let's say oh compared to the, i was about to say compared to the first definitely i was, I was so excited for another uh, guardians film but i mean i think around that time 2017 like avengers would always trump guardians of the galaxy no doubt because you knew the the mcu story as a whole would move forward while at this time the guardians story felt so separated from the rest of it, it felt like its own little pocket, but obviously in time that was slowly come together. So it's it, it, there is an excitement level based on the scene of the first movie. Oh, but God, it's yes. not quite the same as when the rest of the, I guess, Marvel MCU narrative is going to be moved forward. No, no, no way that excites. Close though, close because I, you know, I love Guardians of the Galaxy on its own merits for its own for its own uh, film rather than it's the next Marvel film. It's like, oh, it's the next Guardians film. Great. Mm. I, I like this style, this funny uh, pop music style they do. You know, it works. It, it does. I think, I think it, certainly Well, when, it, when the first one came out, it did feel so different and so separate. Oh, I mean, God, I think yeah. maybe, maybe actually maybe more by this point because I get, yeah, we had Avengers and stuff, but it, it, I don't know if we were, by the time the first Guardians came out, I don't know if we were all thinking... Everything now is serving the infinity, whatever, and everything's yeah. about. Or I think the, the first Guardians movie was, although it had an infinity gem in it, it was so different that I think this one, I think this one coming out, it was like, oh, it's, it's complete. It feels you're right, so, so separate. Yeah. Um, but before, but then the thing I'd like to ask you about is um, how did you feel? Because Baby Groot was all over the promotion <laughs> and the marketing for this movie, the trailers, the teasers, the posters, the little like spots you see, and the merchandise and all of that. Baby Groot was it. It was everywhere. Um, did that? I don't know. Resonate with you? Did it? Did you? Did it, did it spark an awareness? Did it? Did it? Did you think that was fun or that was weird? Or I know I I, I liked it because it's one. It was like Baby Yoda. It was like it's 
we, we've got this big sci-fi space opera thing and we've added a cute character with some familiarity and you go ah oh, that's cute although i do i'm not a big star wars fan these days but i liked baby groot from the off because groot was just cute anyway he was a tall hulking thing but he was so lovely and then to have a baby version of him with these big big eyes looking up at you was just like oh i'm gonna enjoy this so i had a friend um Alice C, if you're listening, shout out my boy. He was like within, I think, within two trailers mm. or a teaser and then a trailer, he was so turned off by Baby Groot. He was like, oh God, so that's the next thing they're doing. Yeah. He was like, he saw it in a very cynical way and he was like, oh, it's gimmicky. Oh, there's going to be loads of toys and t shirts. Yeah, and it's going to be. And I, there were, yeah, and 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 I, I couldn't, I that felt like, um, I think maybe that felt like the first time I'd experienced the Marvel backlash that we see an awful lot of now, because mm. I know what was happening is he was he was he was having like a backlash to the fact that Marvel do an awful lot of stuff, um, but I, I, <laughs> yeah. I was like, Matt, how can you be, how can you be this angry about a movie that isn't out yet, <laughs> like, and based on you think a character in it might get a, how is Baby Groot? Being on T-shirts and in toys going to affect me watching a movie? It's not. It's, Why would I care? It's like a whole different conversation. That it's all about uh, saturation of something. It's why I don't yeah. listen to Radio One or radio in general. I tend to avoid television because of the adverts. It's because you're oversaturated with the next big thing. It's yelled at you constantly on repeat. So I understand that, but at the same time, shut up. Baby Groot is so cute. <laughs> Will Yule the man with the, the, the backstage behind the scenes info to make sense of the dollars and cents. Um, heading into this one, we've got a nice juicy sequel. So there's all, always a lot of uh, interesting rumors and production things flying around. What can you tell us about um, this 2017 offering? Well, it's actually quite interesting uh, in terms of the funding because, of course, Guardians of the Galaxy, the first film which came out in 2014, had a budget of $232.3 million and made a box office of $772.8 million. But, as it turns out, Forbes reported in 2015 that the first Guardians of the Galaxy movie came in over budget. It was originally scheduled to have a budget of 170 to 180 million. So uh, that's quite a lot over budget. Because I knew what the budget for the I I had always heard a thing about Guardians 2 hmm. cost less to make than Guardians 1 and I was always confused as to how that is at all who's ever heard of a se- unless it's a director dvd a director video yeah. sequel that doesn't really count who's ever heard of a sequel costing less actually <laughs> like, all the there's more people all the actors wages go up and everything on, on a on a different uh, complete different franchise uh the first five planets of the apes films from the 60s and 70s had less funding for each one as they went along and it by the fifth film it really showed i i yeah i should preface that without i'm kind of talking in more modern franchise terms i guess because there are you are right there are those times when 
movies that were a big it, they, they were they were they knew it was there were going to be diminishing returns because back then before the franchise era sequels did not make more money than the original nope so you wouldn't put as much in and you would just you know get it out there into the roadhouse theaters the drive-ins and um what was the first the first successful sequel was it godfather part two Hmm, that's an interesting one. I haven't thought about that. Because you remember back in the 80s and 90s when a sequel came out and it was a big thing, like Terminator 2 and Aliens and things like that. It was like, oh my God, they've managed to do it again, this time better or something. It was always a big thing. I'm I'm sure Jaws 2 made a good whack of money. Mm. Now, whether you'd still consider that successful because it wasn't a good film, um, I'm not sure. Maybe, I mean, do do we consider the... The uh, the horrors, the you know Halloween two, uh, Nightmare Part two, you know things like that. That'd be that's interesting a, one to take a look at. That's a very very good question. Well, talk to us now about uh, what happened with with uh, Guardians Volume two. Okay, Guardians Volume two it came out in two thousand and seventeen. Budget was two hundred million dollars. Seems like they're being punished for overspending the previously. <laughs> maybe that's like it's like a budget in low or something but reverse. Like they spent too much so it was like, ah, we need some of that. Yeah, back. you spent another we would have given you an extra 50 million but you spent that last time, didn't yeah. you? So, no. <laughs> but it made back a, a bigger box office of 863.8 million. That is incredible. That's like roughly another 100 million on top that's uh that is very very impressive to grow by roughly a hundred million i mean again the, the these um that you you can't always point to the success of the first movie um in the marvel franchise because the the whole marvel franchise had grown mm. and grown and grown every every time there's a new avengers movie out or whatever you know it seems to push everything up a bit more doesn't it um but still a very impressive feat for Marvel characters that literally Marvel and nobody else could not have cared less about. <laughs> um, fascinating. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. We've got some uh, fascinating production notes too. Uh, when director James Gunn was writing the script for the movie and proposed the idea of using Ego, the living planet, uh, Marvel told him that they did not have the rights to use this character. The rights, in fact, belong to 20th Century Fox because of uh, Ego's strong ties to the Fantastic Four and Silver Surfer franchises. Since Gunn had no other characters in mind, he had to ask Fox if he could use the character. Fortunately, Fox agreed to let Marvel have Ego in return for Fox gaining more creative freedom over Negasonic Teenage Warhead set of superpowers in Deadpool, which came out the previous year. That is insane. Yes, that is a Mar- specific trade, that is. Marvel Marvel movies make so many sweeping changes to things about characters. We talked about, in the last episode we did, Amazing Spider-Man 2, one of the characters, Dr. Ashley Kafka, is a female in the comics and a male in the movies. Yeah. Do they have to get special permission for doing that? Is that, is that changing? The, I, I'm, I, that is a... I, oh, we should try and track down like a, a creative rights lawyer or a specialist an expert and quiz them about this sort of stuff because i don't why would you need permission to change the power set they do it all the time i uh, I, I don't understand that at all uh kind of, kind of weird though because like both movies end up being successful so it kind of worked out well for everybody and in the end fox became disney so it was all for well, nothing it's all for nothing yes, i do remember um there being 
uh, a trade offered at one point in the past. Marvel wanted to use. I mean, this is probably a rumor and not confirmed, but Marvel wanted Galactus, mm. um, and were willing to give Fox something else. I, I I I can't remember what it was, but I remember that being talked about about ten years ago. Um, but who knows? Who knows if that was just nonsense? I always think like like Disney's now Galactus, just consuming, <laughs> consuming other studios that own Marvel property. Uh, but a good Galactus, one that you know gets it all into the MCU. Galactus is beyond good and evil. Galactus just is. All right, Nietzsche. Uh, next bit of fact. Prop master Russell Bobbitt had difficulty finding the cassette decks used in the first film and all of the Sony Walkman headphones they found were broken. Bobbitt contacted Sony to see if they had any available for filming. They did not. So he eventually created six from scratch. That's amazing. I know that they did release off the back of the the first movie a limited edition um, uh, cassette tapes of the soundtrack, which I think were very. I mean, I'm sure it was a limited production run, but were very success, were very popular and sold out and everything. And I'm sure they did the same thing for the second one. But isn't it odd how things like that, Mm. upon how they're shot and framed and lit, can somehow look iconic? Who would have thought a freaking Walkman would have been iconic? I tell you what is never going to be iconic. What? The 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 discman, the sc- like a walk. There's something about oh, a cassette and a tape God. that there is something iconic about that. No one is ever thinking, "Oh, I wish they'd bring back portable CD players." Oh, that, God, they were that a nightmare. Skip every time you move. They 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 did improve on the technology at one point, but it was still yeah. Yes, was, mine. T- Mine proudly said something like anti-jog technology or jog-proof. And I was like, this is nonsense. Also, you couldn't fit them in your pockets unless you were a bit of a grebo like me with their combat trousers. They would not fit in a pocket very nicely. (laughs) I remember remember getting my first MP3 player in like 2002 and it was 64 megabytes and it broke within months. It was (laughs) awful. It was great. It was really cool and futuristic at the time. And then I moved to mini disc and then MP3 players caught up and were actually good again. Man, what a journey. And I tell I you, ne- I remember I never, tapes. I never moved to mini disc. I waited, I think. I was like, I'm not, do- I'm not buying my whole collection all over again. And then when MP3 came out, it was seemed a bit easier to get just new stuff and convert the old. Like converting to mini disc was a, a hassle and. Mm-hmm. Whereas MP3 was a bit easier. Oh, absolutely. Anyway, we'll move away from the past. From being old men. From, yeah, don't want to remember. I mean, I'm, I, I look at the webcam here and go, oh, God, it death staring back at me. No, not you, me. I'm talking about my, not my reflection, my, my, my camera. He covered that well, didn't he, listeners? Covered, covered I'm not well. sure if I believe him. Or, don't, no, no, oh, I, no, no. We'll no, see you, how it goes. I mean, you'd be a nice death, a very friendly death. I don't know where I'm going with this. Anyway, according to the visual effects artist, Ego's Planet contained one trillion polygons. At the time of the film's release, this was considered to be the biggest visual effect ever made. You're kidding me. A trillion polygons? Don't do that voice. That, to me, looked like only 
Uh, half a trillion polygons. What the hell? Well, do you have to explain polygons to you? Yeah. Okay. I'm a regular person. Oh, God. I go out in the sun and I, I, I look around and I see people and I have a drink and I laugh and I read a book occasionally. And don't. Maybe once or twice I'll talk to a girl. Don't. Don't What's lie to us. What's a polygon? Don't lie to us. You don't read books. What's a polygon? <laughs> a polygon. Okay. When you know when you have a 3D shape. No. Okay. You know what a cube is. Yes. That's a 3D shape. Okay. Okay. Each side of it is technically a polygon because those don't have to be four-sided shapes. They can be shapes with various sides. So you have like... Okay. No, no. Okay, you know you have a square. Yeah. A square has four axes or four sides to it, doesn't it? A polygon can have as many axes, but it's still a flat surface, and that's a. And then they get put together. No, you see, you start so well with a thing that's so easy to understand, and then the next, the very next thing you say both times is just bizarre. Okay, okay twelve-sided die. Yes. Each side of the twelve-sided die is itself a polygon, and three D models are more complicated than that, and they, they 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 involve all these little flat surfaces that eventually make up. Something so polygon. So is the here, flat what surface. you say is yeah. lots of flat surfaces. Lots of flat polygons surfaces. are flat surfaces. Yep, flat surfaces. If you look, polygon is any flat surface in CGI. In CGI, if you go there to like go. behind the scenes and look at how they do it, and you see the little wireframe models and everything, like behind before they add the colors and everything, you'll see the polygons. Right. Okay. To me, it's very impressive, but. To a, to a mere ignoramus, <laughs> to uh, someone not powered by ignorance, but getting high off the fumes from my ignorance. Move on. Not doing another t-shirt. High on the fumes. <laughs> high on the fumes of high on the fumes of polygons. James Gunn choreographed and served as the motion capture model for Groot's dance during the opening credit sequence. It took the visual effects team nearly two years to complete the CG rendering for the final scene of the film. I didn't know he did that. Also, that's a long time to render a scene. But that's those are two those are two unconnected oh. things, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Two. Well, the, the final. Oh, wait a minute. I don't know why. If I, oh, I thought that was the final scene. Anyway, the final scene where you're inside the planet. Basically, that took two years. Right. To God, man. Yeah, that's crazy. According to Chris Pratt, shooting this movie helped him come to terms with his father's death. Although he passed away while Pratt was filming Jurassic World uh, in 2014, the actor didn't really get a chance to deal with the death at the time because he was busy filming and wanted to keep the rest of the cast spirits up. For a film that director James Gunn has described as a story about fathers, Pratt was able to open up old wounds and had that had been healing for some time and acknowledged the fact that there are some wounds that, can, that cannot ever be completely healed, such as the death of a parent. My, uh, off topic slightly, my buddy Koki Falco, a comedian and actor, has just filmed um, Jurassic World Dominion with uh, Pratt and everybody. He was just, you know, sending me little pictures of him at the premiere with Goldblum and everybody. Excellent. uh, Well, not, no, it wasn't the premiere. It was, I think it was the cast and crew screening that they did in London. Um, And uh, yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing it. My mum, especially, uh, the new Jurassic Park, because. The one thing that I've realised, they've actually done something new this time. They've actually based the whole film off of a Jurassic Park island. I'm looking forward to just that sort of chaos. Oh, right, because in every other one, it's been starts in a park and then goes outside a bit. Yeah, yeah, and I'm kind of like, yeah, the last one felt like a bridging film. I've really got high hopes for this film. Uh, but anyway, we will see. Time will tell. Back to the facts. 
James Gunn revealed that he and producer Kevin Fiji wanted David Bowie. Fig. For a, for, okay, Fig. Fig. I'm going to call him Kevin Fig. <laughs> go, like, go like a date. Kevin Fig. I'm going to call him there's, Kevin. there's nine people getting this joke now. <laughs> Kevin Fig. <laughs> Kevin Date. No, Kevin Fig wanted David Bowie to appear in a cameo before his death on January 10th, 2016. I could really see David Bowie popping up in this. Yeah, it makes me wonder in what way. Oh, they, I think they talked about wanting him to be a uh, Reaver, one of the Reavers. Oh, that would have been so cool. Old Bowie is a Reaver. Uh, part of me wondered whether it would take play, take the the place of the David Hasselhoff kind of cameo or something like that. But uh, no, I, I remember reading somewhere that they were talking about making him one of the Reavers because they have big stars for those Reaver roles, don't they? They, they, so. they did, but also it was a bit, a bit of a shame because David Bowie knew he was on his way out for quite some time, and Disney and, and of course Marvel Studios like to have some longevity with their actors, so it would never have worked. Would never have worked, sadly. The following actors were considered for the role of Ego. Get ready for this. I don't believe. I never believe these at never, all. Oh, for, look, can't you? Just... I mean, considered is just people sat in a room. Going, wouldn't this guy be good? Yeah, do you, do you, I don't believe any of these would have worked, and I don't believe any of them were approached. Do 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 me a favour. Just close your eyes and imagine what they'd be okay. like as ego. Gary okay. Oldman. That would been that would have been terrible. Yeah, Next. you're right. Uh, Vigo Mortis. Mortis. Terrible. Next. Oh God, Christoph Waltz. Waltz would have been very interesting. Very different. Very interesting. Very quirky. He would have been very quirky. Ego. Christopher Plummer. Too old. I, I yeah. Oh, just speaking too old. Max von Sydow. I love Max von Sydow, but uh, I mean, he he wouldn't mm. be loving father. You have come to my planet. He would have been like all imposing and immediately evil. Alec Baldwin. Too. I don't know. Too Baldwin. The wrong tone. Slightly yeah. the wrong tone. Yep, you're right. Ron Perlman would have been brilliant. Cool. Would have been brilliant. Would not have had the nostalgia connection of that is needed, but would have been brilliant. Of, of, I mean, I absolutely love Kurt Russell, and I was so excited when he got cast in this. Uh, Stephen Lang. Nah. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Terrible. Would have been terrible. Bruce Willis. Would have been awful. He doesn't want would to act so anymore. so bad. No, he hasn't for about 20 years. He doesn't like films anymore. He hates them. He just doesn't. He's, he's like Nicolas Cage, except he doesn't have that same joy that Cage does when he does a film. Uh, Robert De Niro. <laughs> I don't believe Robert De Niro. That's, that's, that, that's, a, that's an insane... That's insane. It would have been... Awful. It would have been horrible. It would have like been... Don't you like my planet? Why don't you like my planet? I don't even know. I just... Why not? I'm your, I'm your father. I'm your father. Why don't you like my planet, huh? Uh, Michael Bean. Uh, I forget who Michael Bean is. Uh, Kyle Reese in Terminator. And in, the, in, the, in the original Terminator. The original Terminator. And he was in Aliens. Okay. And Abyss. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. Nick. Mel Gibson. Bit too serious? No. No. Uh, and... <laughs> Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson. Liam Neeson as Ego. I can see it a lot more than, than some of the others, but I don't think so. Nah, it's too serious. Uh, Matthew McConaughey was also considered, but passed Terrible on the, idea. Passed Terrible on, idea. Just imagine Matthew McConaughey as Ego. He'd be too laid back. Uh, but passed on the role in favour of The Dark Tower. 
Oh, a staggering blockbuster that movie was. Oh, Christ. Uh, James Gunn said the hardest song to get rights uh, get the rights for was ELO's Mr. Blue Sky because the band had previously cleared their song Living Thing for Guardians of the Galaxy 1. But the scene it uh, was in ended up on the cutting room floor. Whether because of hurt feelings or just a feeling that they might be wasting their time again, the band was reportedly hesitant to greenlight the use of their song in the second movie. Once Gunn explained the importance of the sequence, Mr. Blue Sky was featured in he had a fairly easy time convincing it was impossible to drop that scene from the final cut so the song would appear in the film i mean it's the i think it's the i think it's one of the greatest songs ever recorded i adore my, that that song my mum would absolutely kiss you for that she said it's her favorite song of all time and it's for me it's right up there it's a great great song i tell you what in all the stuff i've read about the first movie and the second movie i it feels like every other thing I read is James Gunn having to cut a huge thing out of the movie. <laughs> and I'm not that surprised that first movie went over budget by 15 million if he's cutting entire actors and all sorts of things out of there. Well, did you ever read about behind the behind the scenes of the uh, Indiana Jones trilogy? Like there were so many bits that they put in the first film they had to cut out that ended up being in the second and third films. Oh yes, I had heard that. Yeah, yeah, I remember reading about it. It's like, oh, then this was supposed to happen, but then it then it appeared in the next film. Same thing happened here. Um, Did it? They used them in this movie. I, actually, I don't think. No, I I, I totally pulled okay. that out my my bum. <laughs> Did I thought I thought that? I, well, kind of. <laughs> you simple. just meant they cut a lot. They cut yeah. a lot out because they had too many ideas. So half of that. Anyway, finally, James Gunn said that the 1980 movie Flash Gordon was a big influence on the production design. Can you see this, Rob? Uh, yeah, in the sovereign home world, definitely completely. sovereign home world. Yep, one hundred percent. The rest of it, mm, not too sure. Yeah, it's... not not a huge amount beyond that, really. But in that in that one great scene, yeah, yeah, definitely. Take a trip behind the page now. We'll do a little bit of recapping on the Guardians of the Galaxy because it's been a long, long time since we've uh, talked about these characters and got into it with them. Yeah. 1969, we have the original Guardians of the Galaxy um, come about. And their original um, conception was... Well, before before we knew it was going to be the Guardians of the Galaxy, the original idea that Roy Thomas came up with was a team of super-powered guerrilla soldiers in the future fighting a guerrilla war against a communist-ruled America. Wow. Um, when this finally made it onto the desk of Stan Lee, he was like... Keep the super-powered guerrilla soldiers, but put them in the future. <laughs> and then it was like, no communism, make it aliens, come yeah. on. Um, and so the futuristic year of 1990 was selected. Um, I love it when that's a futuristic year. <laughs> I love a, it. We had a story of an Earth astronaut, Vance Astro. Um, his parents, uh, you know, really put him on a good path with that name. Vance Astro um, was uh, a deep, a deep space mission to Alpha Centauri in suspended animation, and then just like Buck Rogers, he spends thousands of years sleeping through space to get there. When he wakes up in the distant future, he finds that humans invented faster than light travel while he was in suspended animation and beat him <laughs> beat him there through faster than life no one thought to pick him up they'd forgot about him so when he gets to alpha centauri humans have already kind of been doing stuff and yeah. the, the 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 human empire is already kind of spread good old time dilation 
he uh, he is stuck inside his spa- his his containment suit, his his mm. suspended animation suit. If he removes it, his body will age rapidly and he'll die. Um, and he starts to he he discovers that Earth and all the Earth um, colonies have been conquered by a, a a race of warlike aliens called the Badoon Exfulgence. Um, a race older than the Cree, older than the Skrulls, um, and they annihilate human colonies and start wiping out all these different people. And so Astro, Vance Astro, finds a bunch of human, altered human colonists on Pluto and on Mars and on Alpha Centauri and all these different places, um, and they form a guerrilla fighting unit. They call themselves the Guardians of the Galaxy. And they travel around the solar system trying to um, undermine the Badoon and drive them out and save the human race. They don't get their own series after this little introduction. They didn't appear for kind of five years after their first appearance. And then they start to crop up as guests in other comic books. Mm. This all took place in the future, of course, so they're not a part of the regular Marvel day-to-day universe. It's awful. It's an awful lot of time traveling. You know, the Avengers will go to the future, or the Guardians of the Galaxy will come to the past, or whatever. They get their own series in the mid mid seventies, where Dave Cockrum um, gives the characters a complete redesign of their costumes, a much needed redesign. Um, Dave Cockrum redesigned the X Men in the nineteen seventies. You know, when we we talk about that time when Wolverine and Colossus and Nightcrawler and Storm all join the X Men. The X Men get relaunched. Yeah, Dave Cockrum is the guy that redesigned all those costumes and made them look distinctive and bold and and like each individual X-Man was a different superhero whereas the original X-Men they all wore these drab boiler suits with masks um very great dynamic superhero design in the 70s um but that didn't last that long in in the 19 in in the year 1990 the year that Vance Astro was meant to have left earth to go off into the Alpha Centauri mm. um Marvel looked at the success of Star Trek The Next Generation and decided, we aren't doing any space stuff. And so <laughs> they they relaunched Guardians of the Galaxy, this time with a superstar artist called Jim Valentino, mm. who took creative reins, was writing it and drawing it. Um, one of my favourite comics. I, I adored this as a, as, a, as a kid. I really did. Um, it ran until from 1990 to 1999. It was so popular. They and they had so many characters, different characters coming into it. Um, a, a great thing about that, that about that series, the 1990 um, Guardians of the Galaxy, is that Jim Valentino started to think, "Oh, I can just do future versions of popular Marvel characters." So you get a Ghost Rider in the future, and then mm. you get a. What would the vision look like be becoming the future, and like who would the Sorcerer Supreme be, yeah. and all that kind of stuff? So characters have ties to the regular Marvel universe, but wild, big, fun ideas that was so popular, and there were so many popular characters in it that they actually had to launch a second comic featuring a second team of Guardians of the Galaxy called the Galactic Guardians. And both those comics were pretty popular at the time, and then they they were cancelled in the mid nineties. Because Marvel, for a lot of reasons, I think, but Jim Valentino left the company to go and launch um, Image Comics and take all his um, creative brilliance over there. 
And also Marvel had really beaten the cosmic stuff into the ground with the success of the Infinity Gauntlet and its two or three sequels. And Marvel was then pivoting towards X-Men, X-Men, X-Men. We're not too far off in 1995 getting Age of Onslaught and all of that business that we've Mm. covered at length. In 2006, Marvel rejuvenated its cosmic characters, Mm. which had been forgotten about for, you know, a decade. Um, And as we documented on our Patreon, they launched a big cosmic crossover event called Annihilation. Ah, we've covered this, have we? Mm, In which the entire universe, the entire Marvel universe in the present day, was put at risk by a huge, huge cosmic event of, of great death and strife and disparity. And then characters like Drax, Nova the Silver Surfer, Ronan the Accuser, and the Super Skrull Mm. were kind of rejuvenated, repurposed, and rose to to prominence. Massive success was happening at exactly the same time as the Civil War was taking place back on Earth and around the time that Planet Hulk was happening. And uh, 2006-2007, mad time in Marvel for incredible stories. Annihilation had done such a, a great job of not just not just producing a great story, but retool... Like, it's so valuable to a company when a story takes a character that used to have a thing in the 70s and then goes, okay, this is what it means in the modern world. This is why this character is fun and cool and exciting. <laughs> when you do that for a bunch of characters, you've you've injected a fresh, you know, a fresh dose of enthusiasm and life into an intellectual property that the company can do more comics about and all that kind of stuff. Mm. So the following year Marvel wanted to do a sequel to Annihilation and they went to two British writers, Dan Abner and Andy Lanning. Mm. Abner and Lanning, they worked together. They worked. They co-authored loads of comics and things, um, and they kind of they they referred to themselves as D and A, uh, <laughs> D and A, yeah, great. but with a little capital D, lowercase N, capital A, D and A. That is incredible. Um, Abner and Lanning had um, written the Nova series as part of the first Annihilation crossover, mm. um, but on top of that, they both have deep, deep cosmic credentials. Um, Abner and Lanning had great success and, and kind of got, I would get their major comic writing start in the British sci-fi, the legendary British sci-fi series, 2000 AD. Um, um, Abner, perhaps a little bit more prolific than, than Andy Lanning, but they both written that, you know, between them, they've written characters like judge dread, judge Anderson, great. rogue trooper. Um, and, uh, Dan Ab, uh, Dan Abner, I think had co-created sinister Dexter, Ooh. which was, a new strip when I was a kid and then has become one of their longest running strips. Um, Abner also had a huge, a very successful like second career writing novels for Games Workshop. So uh, Games Workshop have a a, a line of, of, you know, prose fiction novels um, set in the Warhammer 40,000 universe. And Abner, had a big success writing a series of of novels which are like huge sweeping military science fiction very war focused as mm. you might expect from Warhammer Warhammer indeed he'd also written Dan Abner had also written um, Doctor Who audio dramas for Big Finish which is a, a big big deal in the Doctor Amazing. Who world and the sci-fi world so yeah oh and they both had a so in the year 2000 um i think it was year 2000 yeah end of the 90s they found big success together abner and lanning at dc comics where they rejuvenated 
um, a, a bunch of characters called the Legion of Superheroes, which okay. um, are all characters in the future, the DC Comics future in space. Superheroes in the future in space sounds like a lot of fun. Again, something had been ignored for a long, long time. Abner and Lanning went to work on them, and their work on on the Legionnaires won them plaudits from like readers and critics. It was widely very well received. And I they, was uh, I was actually going to ask you: was there a DC equivalent of uh, Marvel's cosmic superheroes? But this sounds close enough. Yeah, the Legion of Superheroes. Well, they're very. You can directly compare them to the Guardians because both those original teams take place in the future, yeah, um, and in space. Um, so, so on the back of that, like Abnett and Lanning, and then the back of the Annihilation, they they rejuvenated Nova in a big, big way. They are seen as having like the magic touch for taking, like beloved but not exactly commercially successful characters characters that a company has forgotten about Mm. that readers have forgotten about and rejuvenating them by drilling down into what made the character cool and exciting but updating it for the modern reader and a modern audience so Marvel editor Andy Schmidt signed Abner and Lanning up to be in charge of this important sequel to Annihilation that was called Annihilation Conquest Mm. And they crafted a second cosmic war, a real cosmic war, um, a second one, but but under the Abner and Lanning pen, it felt massively like a war in a way that maybe the first Annihilation kind of didn't. It was a bit, I don't know, it's hard to, there was a lot more of it being forces against an enemy rather than a lot of individualistic kind of stories in the first annihilation uh, abnett and nanning along with um other writers christos gage keith giffen and um javier um javier grizo mark's watch they retooled and reintroduced uh, uh, the uh, the world to another bunch of forgotten marvel space characters groot who hadn't been seen since the 50s <laughs> rocket raccoon who as we detailed in the first episode is an insane character no one wants to go anywhere near yeah and then also adam warlock who was massive in the 90s and hadn't been seen since and also gamora uh, and, and these characters they took star lord who was a bit player in mm. annihilation they had a great idea go oh let's let's use um star lord no one's used him since he might not his origin probably isn't even um technically marvel canon since it was this weird magazine they took star lord from a bit player in annihilation and turned him into a major player in the 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 second war the the, the annihilation Mm. conquest and that crossover event was a big big success such a success that in 2008 marvel comics um signed both abner and lanning to an exclusive contract so they could take some of the key characters from Annihilation Conquest and spin them off into a new series, a brand new iteration of the Guardians of the Galaxy. This time, not characters in the far-flung future, mm-hmm. not anything to do with the distant, distant future, but happening right now as a continuation of all the cosmic events that have been picking up an awful lot of excitement in the Marvel Universe. Editor Bill Roseman, um, who had edited Annihilation Conquest, he talked about this and said, As the planning of Annihilation Conquest came together, it occurred to us, the writers and myself, that if things went well, there would be a group of characters left standing at the end who would make for a very interesting and fun team. 
This would also provide the motivation the team would need, as on the heels of two back-to-back wars, they're out to prevent any new annihilation-sized disasters. Um, And that's how we get this 2008, technically the third version, maybe, of the Guardians of the Galaxy, although... Continent timeline wise, the very first very odd things running through that. Uh, and this run, this run from Conquest, Dan and Abner and Andy running uh, and Andy landing on these characters, writing them Annihilation Conquest to the Guardians of the Galaxy series, and then the big finale they have in a, in a series called The Thanos Imperative. One of my all time favorite comic book runs ever. It's really special. I adore it. We absolutely love hearing from you guys here on Marvel vs. Marvel. You can always get in touch with us if you send an email to Marvel vs. Marvel at gmail.com. You can uh, drop us a line on Twitter as well at Marvel vs. You get all sorts of announcements and updates and news and info on the Twitter. Um, and then other people get in touch with us with other means. Will, what have you got for us in your mailbag? We've got a quite good mailbag today. Uh, Jenny Q wants them T-shirts. I've already put my money aside for the T-shirts. I wish That's they were... That's right. Put your money to one side. Well, done that. Well, as you're listening to this, Jenny, I hope you've ordered. I, 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 I hope you have, because then them some good T-shirts. I've already put my money aside for the T-shirts. I wish they were available right now. I've seen the two different designs on your Twitter page, and I know that I've just got to have both of them. That's right. Both of them. Both That's of- right. You need both. Why wouldn't you need both? <laughs> it's like Pokemon Red and Blue. You need both to get them all. You can't just pick. You can't. You can't. You can't just have a Charizard. You need a Blastoise as well. I can't wait to be walking around my apartment listening to you guys and wearing a Powered by Ignorance T-shirt. This is so cool. Thank you, Jenny Q. Is that right, Jenny Q? Jenny Q. Thank you, Jenny Q. Um, yes, you. There are definitely they're available for you to purchase. You can get them in America, no problem. Uh, we've made taken care of that. And yes, you were waiting, but as you hear this now, um, in as we as we kick off June, they are available from the first of June. They are available. They're out there. I hope you've already uh, purchased them. But if not, this is your reminder, Jenny Q. Um, get on um, offworldtees.com/mvm. Get get hold get hold of them. This is it's so weird. I, I keep saying it. it's weird. We, we you've you've put you've inflicted a catchphrase upon me, and now that catchphrase uh, is on both sides of the Atlantic in t-shirt form. What are you doing to me, Rob? And Australia and all across Europe. All you know, you basically know? the entire world is going to associate that with me, and I'm there going to be depressed, going, "I'm actually quite intelligent." <laughs> but not in this field. You're powered by this podcast is, is powered by ignorance. This is true. They, Without not... the ignorance that you bring to the table, that is that is what true. we wouldn't have a show. Oh man. Anyway, Sam got in touch. He loves Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Guardians of the Galaxy 2 is up there with my favourite films in the MCU. It gets the balance of humour and emotion just right and somehow makes you able to relate to them. Baby Groot is brilliantly funny. Gamora and Quill getting closer. Really nice to see relationships on the first movie evolve. And then the speech that Yondu gives to Rocket about why he pushes people away and how they're the same hit hard not quite as hard as the line he may have been your father but he wasn't your daddy then of course there is 
I'm Mary Poppins, y'all. I think Yondu stole the show. It was like his redemption movie. Thank you for the discount code for the t-shirts. I've put money aside to buy one on June 1st. Thank you, Sam. That was Sam, wasn't it? Yeah. That was Sam. I'm going to Thank you. I'll get on to uh, I'll get on to my feelings about Yondu as well. And the rest of the film, uh, George Bingham wrote in to say, I wasn't a Marvel fan when this movie came out, but when I was, this was one of the movies I saw. I thought it was amazing. To start off, it had one of the best soundtracks ever. Second, the relationships between the characters had me immediately immersed in the story. The ending was also incredible and almost made me cry. Overall, this may make it to one of my favourite Marvel films of all time. It's up there for me as well. Absolutely up there for me. And I have to say, I remember reading about the reaction to the soundtrack. A lot of younger audience members who never heard of ELO before and stuff like that were discovering this new music and going, what is this? This is incredible. Yeah. Such brilliant. I mean, obviously, I don't like uh, culture to stagnate, but there are some stuff from the 70s and 80s that you've really got to discover in terms of music and movies and like that are just timeless and incredible and so inspiring. Uh, lastly, we got King Canuck, who said, A heartwarming and grand exploration of guilt, familial love, and found familial love. Lindsay Ellis did an excellent video talking about the themes in this movie, and I cannot get over how emotional at its core it managed to be. Beyond that, Ego remade as he is here was a lot of fun. I'm neutral on the original character beyond badass sentinel planet and the introduction of the sentient. Ancient, sentient. Sentient. Oh, I don't know why my uh Autocorrect and my mind went Sentinel. Sentient Planet and the introduction of the 80s Guardians Galaxy as the previous generation was fun. Hopefully they return. And shout out to the phenomenal soundtrack, of course. I think I, I saw this movie on holiday. Hmm. I'm not sure I've seen it until rewatching it for this episode. Um, I saw it on my own in a cinema and I enjoyed it, but I don't think I was like, I think I had very high expectations based on the the first movie. And I don't think I came out of it thinking it was as good. I, I, but I, but I, but I, but I I also think that I came out, I don't think it was upon us until a second watch of this that I really felt, I really felt like the emotional stuff was so present. I think perhaps, you know, I'm on holiday, and maybe I was a little drunk, and <laughs> and I enjoyed the action and stuff. Maybe, maybe having a good time in the cinema and not thinking about the movie quite as much as I did upon rewatching it. A lot of the emotional notes went over me. It was only last week, or yeah, last week when I rewatched it um, for the the second time, you know, second time watching it that. It really hit me strongly, mm. and I don't. I don't just mean the the Yondu stuff, but I mean like Nebula and Gamora, Yondu, uh, Yondu and Peter, Peter and Rocket, Rocket and Gr- like all. It just all kind of has this this huge family mm. kind of crisis written throughout it. Um, and yeah, I was a little surprised at how much I kind of glazed over that the first time i saw it um impressive and and yet all of our very intelligent switched on um listeners uh all writing in talking about how emotional it was and that it hit them it hit them really hard um thanks for that guys uh if you want to get in touch with us uh marvel versus marvel at gmail.com of course there's another place you can go 
<laughs> it is patreon.com slash marvel versus marvel it's our home where all our bonus content lives and where you guys can uh turn your lives around because an awful lot of you out there are consuming and and, and not contributing it's like those companies that say oh every time we cut down a tree we're going to plant two more in the rainforest to redress the balance. <laughs> you guys out there aren't redressing the balance. You're take, take, take from this podcast. Take, take, take. You're not putting anything back in. And you feel guilty about it, and we know you do. And that's why we're trying to help you out by saying patreon.com slash Marvel versus Marvel is where you can redress that balance Give something back, put something back into the community, into my goddamn wallet, and uh, <laughs> help yourselves out as well as help us out. Speaking about guys like Peter J, yeah. Mikey W, Randall Schmidt, George Bingham, Zach Thomas, Bastabeer, Sam, and Bindi. Those are the big players, the heavy hitters. We're talking about the world-class wrecking crew. Do the right thing because they do it every month. They're at the top tier. We never expected that top tier to grow like it did, but it has. Boom. These are the people that go through the tiers. They they look at the tiers. They look at that first tier, three pounds. Three Brexit pounds is that first tier. <laughs> and that three pound tier is barely keeps the lights on around here. But in exchange for that, we give you access to our spin-off show each and every month, Obscure Marvel. Up from that, five Brexit pounds gets you the spin-off Obscure Marvel plus early access to every single episode. And then right above that, right, is that £10 tier. And for that £10 tier, you get Obscure Marvel, you get early access, and you get our full-length bonus show. These guys, Peter J, Mikey W, Rendell Schmidt, George Bingham, Zach Thomas, Bastabeer, Sam and Bindi, look at that and say, No! I want to give more! And they do. They double that £10 all the way on top to the Do The Right Thing tier, £20 a month. Me and Will are struggling to find ways to say thank you to those guys Mm. for carrying a weight that a lot of you out there refuse to carry. Sit on your hands instead of picking it up. We've come up with some pretty cool ways. So off the bat, each and every one of them, they're going to get 20% off T-shirts that we're selling right now. Um, that's coming out of our pocket, not out of the pocket of Off-World Tees. Uh, shame, it would have been good if they could have... <laughs> we could have got the company to front that, but no. Me and Will, out of our own pockets, are giving these guys 20% off um, as a way of our showing our appreciation and our thanks. So, guys, make sure you check your Patreon inboxes for that discount code that you can use at the checkout. On top of that, They get exclusive video content that's going nowhere else. Me and Will recorded something uh, not very recently, which was our reactions to seeing um, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, um, which both by the time we'd seen that, we got together in a room and uh, recorded our uh, videos and reacting to that, going through the movie, giving our initial thoughts. Um, we did the same thing. What was the, what was the first one we did? Well, um, first one we did was uh, Moon Knight. Our reaction to Moon Knight. We 
did. We did our reaction yeah. to Moon Knight. Um, so infrequently, me and Will are going to be sitting down and giving our video reactions to um, cool superhero stuff that comes out. We're going to go DC DC stuff as well when that's available. Um, if we think that fits in, we're going to do our reactions to that if we get out to the cinemas to see those. So that's what those guys that do the right thing tier get access to. Um, and there's so many more incredible incredible content bonus content that you get on patreon uh this month <laughs> the first of the month we release obscure marvel the spin-off show now will i'd like to hear <laughs> your, oh. your thoughts and reactions the month the month of june we put out uh an obscure marvel episode focusing on the circus of crime <laughs> who we talked about in some of our early episodes quite a lot what was, how did you enjoy that episode oh what was that what was that cannonball guy called again the man, the human, the man who is the human cannibal. The man who is cannibal, something like that. Um, Circus of crime. You don't get one. You get five, five incredibly forgettable, silly <laughs> villains for your buck. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Oh man, it was. Good. We've got. I mean, they, they obscure Marvel is fun each and every month, um, and we put those mini episodes out. We've got more we've got i've got a great one for you next month will um june's is very good july's is very good there's just a huge amount of fun that we have with obscure marvel and this month on the full length bonus episode it's a hell of a month to get into it they're going to spin off from this episode in so many different directions because i'm going to be taking will and you guys through as i've alluded to my favorite one of my all-time favorite marvel comic runs of all time we're going to dive into the Abner and Lanning written, penned Guardians of the Galaxy series. The full whack. All the all the stories that they do, which have an arc. There is a character arc through all of them. There is a story arc through all of them. Everything leads somewhere. Everything means something. It's a big, bold story. And it involves Thanos. It involves parallel universes. It involves um, Infinity Stones, Cosmic Cubes. It involves the Kree, the Shi'ar, the Scrolls. It's all there. And we're going to be diving into all of it. You don't want to miss it. This is the month. This is the month to sign up, finally. Get access to 30, 40 bonus episodes that are knocking around on patreon.com slash marvel versus marvel. Here we go. The summer starts here on Marvel vs. Marvel, even though technically in this country it's been running for two months. But it, my, my <laughs> summer, our summer, the Marvel vs. Marvel summer starts here as we're both adorned in our Marvel vs. Marvel MVM official merchandise t-shirts from offworldtees.com slash MVM. We've done it all really so far, Will. We have gone behind the scenes. We've gone behind the page. We've looked into the mind of a muggle. Indeed. We've listened to the people that really matter. We've paid some bills. Yes. Laid the table in a way that really only this podcast ever can and ever does. I think it's time, and there is some choice trivia to come. I've seen your questions. I know what you want to ask. <laughs> oh, I can't wait to get to some of this. This is real big boy stuff. Um, take it away, Will. The show is yours. Right. I'm pressing, I'm pressing play. In Missouri, 1980, Meredith Quill is driven to a secret spot in the forest by a young man who claims to be from space. In the forest clearing is an alien plant rooted into the Earth's soil and starts to react mysteriously. 
34 years later on the planet Sovereign, the Guardians of the Galaxy have been hired by the Sovereign race to defend their batteries from Abelisk, an interdimensional monster. As the battle rages on with little to no effect, Drax realises that the beast is weak from the inside and dives straight into its gaping mouth. That's Fancy- not what he says. That's I'm sorry, he doesn't realise it's weak from the inside. He for no reason whatsoever, assumes it's weak from the inside. And everyone around him says, no, it isn't. (laughs) (laughs) And he dives in, and then they have a whole conversation about how, why would skin be weaker on the inside? (laughs) I think it would be weaker on the inside. Well, it is not. Skin is just skin. Okay, fair enough. Not confident in Drax's plan, Peter Quill tries to distract Abelisk to look up so Gamora can get a clear shot of its neck, the monster's weak point. Both attacks work and the beast lies in a bloody mess. So, first of all, the first bit was so happy, as I said before, so happy to see Kurt Russell in this film. Not only that, Rob, not only that, we get CGI young Kurt Russell. Massive box ticked. This movie and... um. This movie particularly made me think, well, hang on a minute. Mm. How much did that cost? Yeah. And can't we just have young Kurt Russell movies from now on? What do you mean, can't we just have young Kurt Russell? You mean just continue making new films but with young Kurt Russell? Can't we do The Thing 2 with Kurt Russell? As a young man. Oh, no. I know it's expensive, but I don't care. Or can we not? Okay, let's say... But he has an old voice, Rob. He has an old voice. I don't care. <laughs> it was perfect in this in a way that The Irishman, or whatever oh, it was called, God. really wasn't. No, I, I want to add to that really wasn't pile. I recently watched Tron Legacy, and CGI young Jeff Bridges is one of the scariest things I've ever seen. It's got the Uncanny Valley problem where it just does I, not look human. I didn't... I, I really liked that movie and I didn't notice it. You I liked just, that movie? Mm, yeah, it's just one long Daft Punk music video. I like Daft Punk. That's so what happened? Thing. So what? What? I, I, I'm not. I'm not actually standing up for Tron Legacy as a great movie. What happened is, yeah, here we go. I had, as I watched that movie, mm. I was suddenly remembering a movie I loved as a child that I had forgotten about for 25 years or something. Right. And as it's happening, I'm going, oh, I kind of remember that. Oh, I kind of remember that. Like, I, and I now, I now, at the end of the movie, I kind of went, and I I watched the original Tron and went, oh my God, I loved this when I was a kid. I loved it. And I watched it again and Mm -hmm. again and again. And then at some point, I stopped and I never thought about it and 20 odd years went by. So watching them watching Legacy was so bizarre because it was built around returning to a thing from the past. Yeah. And I was actually having a real emotional and memory experience whilst watching this movie. I'm not saying the movie is is a great I can't, you know, judge it. I haven't seen it since, but that experience was so great for me. No, I was like, wow. I can imagine that being the case if I watched the original Tron, but I only got round to watching both these films for the first time the other week. And I thought the original Tron was far better. I loved it. 
really, yeah. really enjoyed it. Anyway, we're not talking about Tron, are we, Rob? We're talking about Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 with very handsome, very young CGI Kurt Russell. Anyway, that was a massive box tick for me, seeing him there. Also, I when I saw this in the cinema, I absolutely beamed. Uh, I've had this recently with some Marvel films where I'm so happy watching it, I have tears. It's a very, wow. they elicit a very strong emotion in me now. When I'm enjoying it, when it's getting good, I have tears in my eyes because I'm really happy watching it. And this happened when Mr. Blue Sky started playing. I was so happy. And we, by this point, me and my mum, we've been watching Marvel films together. Uh, and she loved Guardians of the Galaxy. She loves Groot's. And she even, she was excited to see Baby Groot because, you know, she's a mother. And I had to keep, I had to tell her things and I had to keep something secret from her. I had to make sure she had no idea Mr. Blue Sky was going to be playing because it's her favourite song of all time. And she wow. beamed, she lit up when she watched this. She absolutely loved it and couldn't have asked for a better start from a Marvel film. There are some movies where soundtracks are just so, so important, aren't oh, they? You think of like Cameron Crowe movies where the soundtracks are are really 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 important to them um and uh i certainly think these these james gunn movies have been as well he, he, uh, james gunn has this great ability to know what kind of playlist to put in it's almost like he's got an eclectic uh, cd collection back home and he kind of wants you to let he's kind of inviting you into his lounge and going oh i bet you've never heard of this one before I bet you never. Yeah. Like, I'll play you this one. You know this well, one. I don't, you like this one, I, I, don't this one. I, I don't. I don't. It doesn't strike me. Uh, these are all very, to, to my mind, these are all very famous. It's not like he's pissing now. Oh, it's an indie record. No one's ever heard of. No, no, these no, are all chart-topping monster hits. Yeah, but there's a lot of blind spots for me and some other people. Like, oh, I've never heard that film, and now sure, it's my yeah, new favorite song I, of the time. Yeah, but I, I just, I just, I think it's more of a celebration of. Good music is yeah. good music, right? Sometimes I just feel a little bit. I don't like the idea that uh, I don't know. I think I think the ones that really work, like Cameron Crowe, Wes Anderson as well. Yeah, uh, his movies like use so many of the, the the best songs you've ever heard, and you and, and it's like it's not like he's picking out an underground thing you've never heard of before. But they're both, and, and James Gunn as well, they're using great songs that kind of fit good moods and uplift or make you feel melancholic. And But you're, but they're, so what I, but they're all big songs. What I meant, to, I think what I meant to say was, here's one you probably hadn't heard in a while or you've forgotten about. Yeah. It sort of left your mind and you go, oh, I remember this song, I remember this song. And a lot, so much of that's happened with these films. Uh, so, Rob, the first fight scene, obviously, if we can agree, is held together by uh, baby Groot dancing. Is this something that happens to Groot in the comics? It does sound like something they just put in the film to sell baby Groot toys. And because it's quite cute, it's quite good to watch. Is there a baby version of Groot in the Marvel comics? Sort of, but not really! We will get that's, that that's on a t-shirt not... very soon, guys. I don't think anyone's crying out for that. I am... Um, well, Here's a big here's a big thing that it's not made I don't think it's made abundantly obvious in this movie. But Baby Groot is not the original Groot. I've read about this, yeah. Groot died at the end of the first movie. Yeah. And Baby Groot is literally his offspring. And James Gunn has had to confirm this <laughs> numerous times in interviews and like on Twitter and so since the movie came out. Um and I don't think people want that to be the case, but it is, and it almost for the for the Groot's sacrifice at the end yeah. of the first movie to have resonance 
It has to be a sacrifice, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it can't be um, him. In the comic books, Groot is sacrifices himself like that a lot. Um, but it's not really a sacrifice because it's never a death. So Groot... Groot's consciousness exists in every aspect of Groot's form, his mm. body, its body. As long as a single splinter of its body remains, a twig or a flower or any aspect, Groot's consciousness is in that, is able to be reborn. So every tiny part of him contains a consciousness, and if that survives, Groot survives. So it, it just requires then time and like f- food and sunlight to regrow a body. So when the 2008 Guardians of the Galaxy series begins, Groot's body has already been destroyed during the Second Annihilation War, the war against the Phalanx. So that series does start with a baby Groot, a sapling being cared for by the team while it regrows. And its voice is actually so small that it still has a speech bubble. (laughs) <laughs> but the but the text is illegible because the voice is so yeah, quiet yeah. that you can't read it and know what it says. Um, but this, yeah, this baby group is is very much confined to a plant pot and needs. It's a baby. Mm. It needs feeding mulch on a regular basis. It needs watering at the right time, pruning. It needs putting in sunlight and looking after. It can't kind of go about dancing around uh, like this. No, no. But yes, there is a baby Groot. But I'd argue it's not quite as cute. It's not, or at least once the movie came out, a lot of my a lot of my trivia is going to end like this. But then once the movie came out, Marvel Comics changed it so it would be just like the movie because that happens a lot. I'm afraid that's uh, that's fair play. Back to the movie. The High Priestess of the Sovereign Race congratulates the Guardians on a job well done. Their reward: Nebula, Gamora's evil sister, alive and well. The prisoner was apprehended by sovereign soldiers after she was caught trying to steal the very batteries the Guardians were hired to protect. As the Guardians head off to collect the bounty on Nebula's head, Peter is bothered by a passing comment that the High Priestess made about his lineage. The fact he never knew his father hurts Peter still. Seconds later, an alarm goes off on their ship. The High Priestess has realised that Rocket has stolen a few of the Sovereign's batteries for himself, and they have sent an entire fleet to take down the Guardians. Peter and Rocket try to pilot the ship through a quantum asteroid field to lose their pursuers, but the remaining Sovereign pilots persist and get a few crucial hits on the Guardians' craft. So in the comic books, are the Guardians like this mercenaries and thieves? Hmm. hmm. The the guardians are not. No. Rocket they've Raccoon. They've all had. They've all had dodgy pasts. Yeah. No. Rocket. Rocket isn't. No. So, in 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 the aftermath of Annihilation Conquest, the, the Phalanx invasion of 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 the Kree Empire, Star Lord is now a veteran of like two horrific wars, mm. and he decides to put together this team, mm. um, to. To preemptively stop threats from from occurring, to because they, like they've just been back to back reacting to two huge giant cosmic wars, and they need to start stopping things proactively. So 
he he puts these characters together that include Rocket Raccoon and and, and Groot and um, Gamora and, and and Drax and also um, two other characters that aren't in this movie sort of um, Quasar, Philavel, mm. um, and Adam Warlock. These are all lost, broken characters, right? Who all suffered horribly during one or both of the Annihilation Wars, and 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 they they all have a reason. To need to be on this team, right? Um, okay, they are written as like veterans, soldiers, that kind of thing. They are all a bit harrowed and a bit like roughed up and beaten down by these two wars. Mm. But Star Lord still has to beg, bargain, and cajole them all into doing it um, because they are this this kind of bizarre mix of assassins and destroyers and soldiers and. Whatever the hell Adam Warlock is. Um, so they're not riding around the universe, stealing stuff and having adventures. The The universe is falling apart. Ooh, and yeah. there is this frustration, specifically that Peter Quill has, that nobody else can see it, right? So the Annihilation Wars, the use of... So when a cosmic war is fought, the kind of weapons that are used to fire on planets, to destroy starships. These things batter the membrane of the space-time continuum. And now, after two back-to-back wars, the fabric of the universe is rupturing. It's very, it's paper-thin. Any more of these huge cosmic wars, and that membrane can, can split and has been splitting, and reality can start to collapse, and something else from outside can start to get in. So Ooh. Star-Lord puts this team together in this frantic, urgent, desperate we've got to rot we've got to we've got to stop all these people from having wars with each other and at the same time when these ruptures happen, these fissures happen and hell comes pouring through from whatever is outside of our universe, we have to be the first people that us to to stop it. Yeah, that sounds it's about n- right. It's not quite as fun and lighthearted. No, it's not quirky and little jobs and doing all this kind of stuff. It's more like we're uh, the doomed frontline defense of the entire universe and we have a massive burden and and no one else no hardly anyone else knows they exist. Oh. They don't and they're not interested when they hear about they don't believe them when they talk about these but we've got more pressing problems. Hmm. What's your more pressing problem? My empire doesn't like their empire. <laughs> we've got to go and hit them. Um, but there is like Rocket and Star-Lord are both deeply deeply sarcastic still. So they are making kind of there it, there is moments of lots of fun and levity in it but it it it's not happy go lucky. Yeah, that sounds about right. Okay, back to the film. As they exit the field, Peter is dismayed to see the bulking remainder of the Sovereign fleet waiting for them, but the next second each one of the ambushing ships is destroyed by an unknown craft. A jump portal opens, allowing the Guardians to escape and crash land on the mysterious planet Bearhart. The sorry, is it Bearhart? I think it is. We'll say Burhut. Burhut. Burhut, I'd Burhut. say. The Guardians recover and inspect the wreckage of their ship with Quill and Rocket arguing about who was at fault and nearly coming to blows. Then, the unknown craft that saved them descends from the sky. The doors open to reveal Ego, who claims to be Peter's father. Oh, The way the Sovereign fleet is controlled... Uh, 
like a video game arcade machine complete the sound effects is just incredible i really love that bit it also felt like how um like modern warfare and drones and all that seem to be conducted these days as well but they gamified it more they gamified it more. I, I would argue that you know there's this whole thing of like oh no drone strikes uh, people who just do drones are just uh, playing a video game like no it's way more complicated than that it's not it's not like that if you ever seen the film eyes in the, eye in the sky uh with uh, the late uh who's the bad guy from die hard played by again alan rickman alan rickman alan rickman helen mirren uh shoot the glass <laughs> Sorry. he says it twice in german to germans and both times the germans go what oh. glassen and he goes, shoot the glass! And they go, ah, why didn't you say so? That is a weird bit. But yeah, uh, <laughs> if you watch that film, you'll see that it's definitely not a video game. There's, there's a lot of trauma involved. Even if you're behind the screen, it is a lot. Anyway, uh, there are so many little quips and back and forth as well during the se- these scenes. It's just brilliant. I like the way they still got the momentum running from the first film because that's what I loved about the first film was just the humour in it. These little bits, they... they, they the little, yeah. little, little one of my one bit I loved was <laughs> Rocket threatening to put Lever Poo in uh, in in Quill's pillow, and he goes, "You do that with yours?" And, no, no, one of Drax's, and Drax laughs and goes, "Ha ha ha! I have famously huge turds." And it's just a great little topper. Despite Baby Groot, despite Drax Baby Groot. steals this movie. He really does. There are some really good Drax movies. Every, in my mind, all the funniest bits in this movie are Drax. Agreed. And I Agreed. gotta, Palmer Chaz, give a shout out to uh, a man from my profession, my industry, professional wrestling. Um, I mean, maybe we'd uh, cross paths and maybe we worked on slightly different levels uh, of, of that industry. Uh, but my boy, the former world heavyweight champion, Batista. Dave Batista. He's, yeah, man. He he, he, does, he does a good job here. Apparently, I read somewhere that that laugh he does later, uh, he, it's not his actual laugh. They had to he had to put on the fakest laugh ever, but it came off really well. <laughs> you know when he's yeah. laughing, yeah, yeah. I I, I don't I, think I, anyone who laughs in a movie is doing a real laugh. I just think blanket statement there. Blanket. I have a feeling when people laugh in movies, they're acting. But I, I there mean, is one. Fairly famous example of a genuine laugh in a film. The first Wayne's World film. You know that scene where they're, they're sat at night on the boot of it, on the uh, bonnet of his car? Oh, yeah. And yeah. Garth goes, do the you ever Bugs think... The Bugs Bunny bit. The Bugs yeah. Bunny bit, and then he starts laughing. He's actually laughing because of a joke they told backstage just before filming. What actually happens there, he's remembering the joke and actually coming out with a genuine laugh. Because it doesn't sound so... It sounds different. It actually does sound like a genuine laugh. I love it. Wayne's World, great film. Please watch it. Uh, Woody Allen also in some of his movies, uh, t- like wouldn't pre- like he has scenes where, as he's telling a funny story, the other characters are laughing and it kind of breaks up the flow of the of the story. Yeah. Um, and despite the fact he's clearly a weird, damaged, very yeah. uh, dodgy person, um, and I don't, this I learned, I used to really really like him and his movies, so I kind of learned a lot of this before educating myself um but yes I, I i did i did have an affinity for this thing of you know when someone tells a funny story people laugh during it and so there are a couple of movies mm-hmm. um uh, there's a laughter that, of anticipation almost there's a laughter of anticipation i think there's something like that when there's funny stories being told and also along the way there's little quips maybe yeah yeah 
I don't know. I, I thought I was making a point, but obviously not. No, I, I guess you were, but there's also a funny story has funny things that happen. I laugh at the funny things that happen. The, the funny things are funny in a story. Anyway, <laughs> the sovereign, Rob. The sovereign. Our very... Dis- <laughs> Speaking of absolutely forced, inorganic moments, stopping the flow to get on with the podcast. The sovereign, Rob, are very distinctive characters. Are they characters from the original stories? Uh, no, no, not at all. They are I- entirely created for this movie. No, and, yeah, and I, and they uh, really they really struck me as being brilliant because I I was like they are they are very distinctive yes. characters. Um, they like the great set design, oh, great incredible. look, great um, great costume designs. The sets were, I mean, great world building that they yes. give us. Yes. Like we learn in their brief appearance, we get, oh, there's a hierarchy, there's artificial creatures, they don't sully their hands, um, they look down on, you know, there's loads, they, they build loads in, just, in that. In just a like, short space of time, we know about an entire yeah. civilization. And and I developed not usually my type, but I developed a pretty bit of a bit of a crush on Elizabeth Debicki, the, uh, yeah. the 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 actor that plays the high priestess. You... Only in this movie, though, I've seen her in other things, and I'm like, no, thank no, you. No, but no, in I... this, when she's painted gold and being mean and distant, yes, it's time to have a crush. Basically, she works well as a robot or as a dead Bond girl. Uh, not a robot, I... no. Robot. Oh, it's what you being doing like a C-3PO. Because of the goldness. Got you. But yeah, well, obviously, I fancy C-3PO. Who doesn't? Jeez. Who doesn't? I'm only human. Jeez. He... No, I won't say anything about that. That's going to be rude. So I did not know that. It's incredible. Anyway. And, but that's... That, I think that is the, the big... Fla- I think that's the only... As we talked about, the only Flash Gordon influence I can see in this movie... That does feel very... Is in their courtroom yeah. and the gold and the elaborate... You think of all the elaborate costumes in... Flash Gordon, FYI, one of my... I mean, I, I can't, I can't judge it objectively because it was my favorite ki- movie when I was a kid. Is it's still in my all-time top ten favorite movies? I watch it. I think I watch it every year on my birthday, um, along with Casablanca and and a couple of others. I just adore that wow. movie. That's uh, yeah. very, very eclectic. Anyway, back to the movie. On the planet Contraxia, Yondu and the rest of the Ravagers are enjoying some much-needed R and R until Yondu starts a fight with Stacker Ogord. Just to interrupt, I've ju- I, I, I don't have a lot about this because nothing of note happens. But every place, pretty much, except from except from the sovereign world, all these little when when it when it's like Contraxia and mm. and Bearhut and stuff, those are planets in the Marvel universe um, that have appeared. A couple, like nothing of note happens. I didn't, you know, it's not it's not anything to bring up and go. A Contraxia is an amazing. Yeah, it's nothing. Yeah, it's yeah. A, it had like one or two appearances, but it's a li- it feels a little bit like you know when there's a like a character that walks in has one line and leaves and we'd look into it and go oh yeah that is a character who had made nine appearances it seems like they do the same with the um with the uh the planets as well i'm actually rereading the guardians the 2008 guardians of the galaxy at the moment just because i i you know i want to be fully prepared for our bonus episode and i love it as well and i'm reading it going bearhut bearhut where have i heard that recently yeah bearhut they're on the planet bearhut oh it was in the movie i watched the other day <laughs> <laughs> i like that it's consistent world building uh off off the, off the screen and on the well page. why not there, all yeah. these things exist in 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 the in the intellectual property and all the 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 the, the worlds they've been creating for years. Why not like have some unpaid intern find out <laughs> what 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 names they should use? Exactly. 
Anyway, continuing with the story. So Yondu starts a fight with Starkar Ogor, the leader of one of the other Ravager factions. After Starkar exiles Yondu from the Ravager community for child trafficking. That's a big one. That's a big one. That's a big one. That's a big one. It's like immediately you're there going, you Yondu was bad, but come on, Yondu. That's a bit creepy. Yeah. Anyway, Starker tells Yondu that he might wear the badge of a Ravenger, but he will never hear the horns of freedom when he dies, and the colours of Ogord will not flash over his grave. As Yondu feels sorry for himself, the High Priestess makes a grand entrance and offers the exiled Ravager a job. Capture the Guardians. Also this scene, nice to see Howard the Duck again. Yeah, although I hated his voice. You hate the voice actor. Seth Green. I don't. I don't say I hate the voice actor. I didn't realize Seth Green did it. No, quite like Seth. I mean, I'm a big Buffy fan, so I like Seth. Uh, as much do you know what as happened with guy. Seth Green recently? <laughs> I do. He lost his ape. <laughs> his monkeys has gone. Um, his but gone. I, I deeply loved the blue carpet. Oh, and God, the, the thing not thing. turning. That was great. Everything about that worked because immediately you're, you're seeing this most impractical entrance in this utter. Forgive me for saying this hive of scum and villainy because obviously it's very Star Warsy, and then you see this grand entrance, and it's funny enough because it's so impractical and lavishing, and then you get the the roller stopping and this awkward moment, and then it continues, and it's just perfect. And also, and this maybe I read way too much into this because I had a bit of a crush on the actor, but mm. the way that the High Priestess doesn't react particularly mm. isn't isn't like. It just gave me this sense of of like uh, regality. Yes. Like, but I'm in public. I have to conduct myself, it's and just, these things happen, and this is just part of you know. If I recall just, the scene, she doesn't even look. No, she just yeah. sees this as like a minor, like a like an inconvenience yeah. that she can't even bring herself to react to. I'm I'm not going to reach down and help you. Yeah, and I'm not going to step foot on anything other than the carpet. I'll just wait. It was such a. Pa- just, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe that wasn't in their thinking, but that's what it conveyed to me. It was such a. Pa- also, this that little moment like that. Uh, it, it reminded me of something that would happen in a Spielberg or a Coen Brothers movie. That kind of. Yes, the, the, very Coensy. Very yeah. Coensy. At a moment of pure seriousness, you get this little quick visual gag yeah. that li- immediately lightens the tone a little bit, and I just love it. I'm currently. But going- also, oh, sorry, but also, yeah. I don't. I. I mean, it does lighten the tone, but also, I think it's for for me when, it, when things like this happen in a, in a Coen's movie, these yeah. idiosyncrasies. Yeah. It is twofold. Yes, it's funny, but it's also saying that because it's an awful lot of hitmen and gangsters and all that kind of stuff. Hitmen, gangsters, and killers, they're not monsters that you'll never meet. They there are these fallible moments that that in Coen Brothers movies are are there to also say to you, this is a real person. Yes. Right? So when they let's say the hitman gets his fly undone and it's stuck and he can't get it up. Yeah, it's funny. But also, it's the kind of drum home to you, this is a real person that is about to murder somebody or whatever they're about to do. I'm currently, like currently going through a Coen Brothers uh binge uh, last few days and there oh. are so many moments like that it's brilliant so many uh, human Mi- moments M- miller's crossing i also watch every year on my birthday <sighs> that, uh, that was really birthday. good very good I adore that movie. Film. guess who yeah. guess who popped up in that in a bit part very quickly sam raimi 
oh, that's oh, well, I can't picture it, but I do have a memory of being told that or reading it or yeah. something. Yeah, great, great, great film, great soundtrack as well. But I won't go into it. We'll save that for You're our. Give me uh, the hi hat. Are you give me the hi hat. <laughs> <laughs> we'll save that for that our film. next podcast. Lebowski versus Lebowski. Uh, absolute mad, absolute madness, isn't it? How they got Sylvester Stallone in this? It's just for a bit part. Or hopefully something a bit more uh, bigger later in the franchise. We might see more of him. We don't know. Uh, what can you tell us about Stakar Ogod? This is Starhawk. Starhawk is a major character from the original <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy uh, in, in, in the 70s and, in, and a, bit, a bit more in the 90s. Um, Starhawk is a vastly powerful cosmic being who appoints himself like protector of the universe and then joins the Guardians of the Galaxy and and so yeah he's not a guy in a jacket Um, (laughs) yeah Starhawk can manipulate light and energy he can create solid light constructs he can fly at the speed of light survive in the vacuum of space he's so strong and durable he has fought thor one-on-one in hand-to-hand combat and been fine with it um i can imagine it if he's being played by sylvester stallone though like (laughs) like 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 he's fighting thor bloods down his face he goes oh god are we ready for this guys here we go thor I didn't hear no bell. Shameless Blackpool end of the pier entertainer he is. Um, <laughs> what me? Yeah, Star. <laughs> any excuse? Any, um, uh, I can almost imagine uh, getting Rocky. Hey! I was thinking more like a hack eighties <laughs> US stand-up going. I wonder what that would sound like. I think it would sound a little bit like this. So Starhawk um, also has what appears to everyone else to be precognition. He knows what's going to happen before it happens. Big events. This is actually due to the fact that Starhawk lives is cursed to live a constant cycle and recycle of his own life over and over and over again. And in each cycle, Starhawk rem- retains the memories of all of his previous lives. Oh. Um in the year 3014, he teams up with uh, the Defenders, Doctor Strange and the Hulk and those guts, and the Guardians of the Galaxy to finally, in the future, defeat the alien Badoon exfulgence, drive them out of, of, of Earth and the Earth colonies and stuff and end their genocide. Mm. And from there, he joins the Guardians of the Galaxy. And it is later revealed... That he was secretly responsible for manipulating events in the universe to bring all the original Guardians of the Galaxy members together uh, to form the team in the first place. Okay. Um, very, very manipulative. Um, sees himself as kind of being a little bit above good, good and evil to a certain extent. But that's in a far-flung future. And then... When the 2008 Guardians of the Galaxy series with with Star-Lord began and and these characters, Starhawk travels back in time from the future to kill our Guardians of the Galaxy in 2008, raving that their their very existence is wrong, should not happen. (laughs) There are no Guardians of the Galaxy in 2008. They should not exist, and their existence threatens 
the future that he's from. Sounds like me when more, I saw Zack Snyder's Justice League. More on that in this month's full-length uh, bonus episode on Patreon. What a fine bonus episode we have to look forward Don't to. Don't try and save it now when you interrupted with your little wee joke. You know I was on my track to make a killer little link and here he comes with another Zack Snyder jab. A Snidey Snyder jab. <laughs> that was bad. I'm so... You know what? I'm not sorry. Destroyed I'm gonna... my flow. I'd set that all up. Destroyed. I'm gonna my... go. I'm gonna hit that really cool moment and go right into that little plug. And you were like, "No, everyone, get out of the way! I've got a joke." <laughs> <laughs> That's, uh, I, I did the, be- the best jokes are the ones that step in at each other's flows. It's, uh... I agree, I agree. Okay, okay, good. No one's punching each other today. Back on Bearheart, around a campfire, Ego tells Peter how he's been trying to track his son down all this time and hired Yondu to find Peter instead of kidnapping him and raising Peter as his own. Mantis... Ego's assistant introduces herself to the Guardians and explains she was raised on Ego's planet and has never had contact with any other life forms. Ego invites Quill to his home planet to learn more about his heritage. Quill is suspicious of Ego and reluctant to give him a chance. Gamora shares a tender moment with Quill. She reminds him that he was so lonely as a child that he used to pretend that the famous David Hasselhoff was his father. Gamora convinces Quill to give Ego a chance. The team splits up. Quill, Gamora and Drax go with Ego while Rocket stays behind to fix the ship and keep watch over Nebula and Groot. Before they leave, Quill looks like he wants to reconcile with Rocket, but Rocket calls him a dick and they part him on bad terms. There's such, yeah, again, great little moments here uh, going on. I did laugh so much at the whole David Hasselhoff thing, though. The whole <laughs> David Hasselhoff. It was, it was just like, it, it, I guess, you used to tell me, he used to... Uh, fight crime with a magic car. <laughs> no, like a magic a boat. Magic boat. That was it. Magic boat. No, you had a you had a talking car. <laughs> so Zardu I, has. I. That was it. Sorry. That was it. Zardu. You 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 talk because I no I no no you've you. got a thing you no 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 no, no I just go. found my note it says the, the, the line was Zardu Hasselfrau who owned a magic boat. <laughs> <laughs> I I think it's a good time to say that um, the actor that plays Mantis Pom Clement her uh, Clementief yes. Clementief absolutely kills it again. I mean, if if Drax doesn't steal this movie, then she does. She really really kills it in well, in in this character and the expressions and the light. It's brilliant. She she does have that sort of naivety going on around her, about her. And it, and she does it without playing on it too much. They're like it's, it feels genuine. But the, I think some of Drax's best moments are when he's bouncing off or insulting. Of Mantis. course, yeah, yeah. It, yeah. They, I think they work together so well in the same room. Yeah. Um, without getting too personal for a bit, we talked about how the whole father storyline hit hit a note with certain people. It definitely hit me. I think especially when I saw this. I think 2017 there was some family stuff happening. Uh, and I came to realise my father wasn't a great person. And this whole film, because he was absent for a lot of my childhood because he was away in the Navy. And then I ended up moving away to London and I was spending more time. I was living with my mum and stuff, so I didn't see him all the time. There was the whole absence thing, figuring out your father isn't who you think he is. There were so many little things that really resonated with me on a very yeah. personal level, which is why I think this film will always <clears throat> strike a chord with me. So it was just... Yeah, 
it was well Chris Pratt said the same thing didn't he he said the same thing well here's more about coming to terms with his father's dead not his father is a philandering narcissist the the fact that a story can help you or maybe just make you maybe not always help but just make you confront you know actual things that are going on that that you felt in your life is um, yeah it's it's big isn't it when that happens oh absolutely big rarely happens but it's so good when it does anyway enough about me let's get back to the film it's a bit different to my story about having the horn for one of the characters (laughs) (laughs) should I just share a personal story from my life I really fancied this actor oh Uh, Rob why do I have to paint myself gold (laughs) why do I have to roll the carpet out in the bedroom (laughs) that's not a bad idea actually that one Uh, planting ideas through the power of ignorance Uh, anyway (laughs) On the ride to Ego's planet, Mantis reveals to Peter, Drax, and Gamora that she has empathetic powers. She touches Quill and reveals that he feels a romantic and sexual love for Gamora, causing Drax to erupt into belly loves. Deep belly loves. That's such a great scene. So funny. I'll I'll come to it in a bit, but I'll just finish this last little bit. Mantis can also manipulate people's feelings. If someone is feeling pain, she is able to ease them into contentment. Mantis says... She mostly uses ability to help Ego sleep. But getting on to Drax laughing at Peter getting humiliated, I mean, this was... It, it's, such a, it's such a great laugh. It is. There are some laughs you see in film which are, oh, that's quite funny. But this one, it's infectious. I remember they showed this clip in the trailer, and that was me going, no, I'm going to enjoy this. This is me absolutely sold. This is such a great moment. It's just... The great part is it, it comes out the awkward the awkward bit Mantis is revealing in a typical oh you feel sexual he's like no 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 I don't and then there's that second of silence and then Drax hammering this laugh pointing at him and he goes you must feel so embarrassed and then the next big laugh little topper do me next do me next like he's almost yeah. it's gone from mocking to jovial there's this great unspoken thing in in this which is that in the first film. Drax, like, uh, can't grasp metaphors and things beyond the literal. Yes. And they don't say that he is learning to be more like everyone else. But this movie is 100% what that would be like. And that's what it, he's, he's, he's grasping humour yes. for, like, what feels like the first time. It's like and a child grasping... laughing at a joke. It's like a child yeah. laughing at but But, yeah, exactly. Sorry, I spoke over you again. Uh <laughs> It's a good thing we're on webcam. He can't slap me. <laughs> he can't slap me. Anyway, so Mantis, uh, is she a character created for this movie? No. Okay. Str- are you strapped in? Oh, I'm sat strap down. In. That's enough. You need to strap in. <laughs> um, Here we go. So Mantis is a Vietnamese prostitute in the comics. We're already on the um, right path, people. Keep going. A Vietnamese prostitute. <laughs> this is where, in a bar, she meets a down-and-out former supervillain turned adventurer called the Swordsman, who Ooh. is essentially like the guy that trained Hawkeye how to be Hawkeye. Yes. And she helps the Swordsman regain his dignity and in, and in his, like, moral compass and together they leave vietnam to both go and join the avengers why is a prostitute allowed to join the avengers well (laughs) because she's good at martial arts a bit and um it's just kind of easier than having an awkward conversation with the swordsman (laughs) about why his hooker girlfriend keeps coming to all the avenger meetings should we question Um, why he's brought a sex worker with him no just give her a badge ignore it (laughs) also she styles her 
the fr- her black hair, her bangs, her fringe, into two massive strands at the front that look like black antennae. Right. But are not antennae, just a bit of hair. Um, yeah, so she moves into the mansion with the swordsman, and there's initially a lot of tension. Uh, right, so what happens is she's with the swordsman, but not 100% with the swordsman, hmm. and Mantis starts to get very close to the vision. Now, this absolutely drives Wanda up the wall. <laughs> it also drives the swordsman up the wall as well. So there's this, like, four-way tension, this love quad. Uh, <laughs> Mantis, Vision, Vision, Wanda, Swordsman, Mantis. It's all... It's just a mess. Um, and... and Oh, yeah. And then, the next part of the story is... It's revealed that Mantis is going to give birth to the new Jesus. So that's (laughs) that's the next. Okay, so we discover Mantis's real childhood past. She is a Vietnamese child of a supervillain called Libra. We don't have time to get into Libra, but there we go. When when she was a child. Mantis was left by Libra with the priests of Pamar, a sect of Cree, a secret sect of Cree, mm. like a cultish church of the Cree that lived on Earth in hiding. And she was trained by the priests of Pamar, who believed that Mantis was going to become the new celestial Madonna, that she wow. would mate with the royal family of the Kotati, an alien race of plant creatures. And she would give birth to the most important celestial being in the galaxy who would bring peace to all life, the vegetable Jesus. She... (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. No, 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 no. I'm going to have to ruin your flow again. We're going to have to... Breathe in that moment. Sorry, the vegetable Jesus. That's what I'm calling it. Yes. So um, th- that's the Jesus who literally can eat his body. Oh, sorry, that good. was bad. Very good. Um, Mantis Excel. She was. She got the name Mantis because she was very good at martial arts. I don't know what those two things have to go there, other than praying Mantis. I guess. Yep. Um, it's a style. The 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 the, the, the priests of Pamar, who are the protectors of the Kotati here on Earth. And the priests of Pamar enhanced Mantis's mind, giving her telepathic and empathic abilities that a human shouldn't have. Then on her 18th birthday, the priests of Pamar mind-wiped her, gave her false memories of a childhood as an orphan, in order for her to experience a regular human life, which they believed would be a benefit to her becoming the Celestial Madonna. Uh, and this is how she became a prostitute. <laughs> Not entirely sure their plan worked out. Um, once it's revealed that Mantis is the fated to be the Celestial Madonna, uh, Kang the Conqueror shows up to murder her so he can prevent Vegetable Jesus from ever happening. Kang hates Vegetable Jesus. He will not allow there to be a Vegetable Jesus in his lifetime. He hates Vegetable Jesus. He always leaves it on the plate after he's finished his main. 
Sorry. I'm glad, I'm glad you're here for this. I'm, glad, I'm so happy to <laughs> the be swordsman, here. The swordsman sacrifices himself at the last minute to save Mantis and is then killed by Kang. And if you think this story <laughs> is as mad as it could get, no. Mantis has the Avengers bury the swordsman at the temple where she definitely grew up in Vietnam. Definitely grew up in. Which they later find out is where the Kotati plant creatures, vegetable creatures, have been living uh, for thousands of years, whereas the priests of Pamar protect them. So naturally, the Kotati grow themselves inside the dead body of the swordsman oh. and reanimate him as a vegetable zombie avenger. <laughs> He glows green and is a vegetable with some meat being reanimated. He's basically a main course. At this point, I'm just going to ignore them. At this point, <laughs> Mantis accepts her fate of becoming the Celestial Madonna because now the Kotati are wearing the swordsman's meat body like a kind of meaty suit. And she loved the swordsman, and she's grieving for him. So she's like, okay, now I'll marry into the Kotati and sleep with whatever that thing is. It's a full Sunday dinner, if you ask me. Hey! Uh, you were see, waiting, I can, you were I can si- do him for some reason. You were sitting on that one. You um, hated my ones, but you wanted to do it yourself. <laughs> so Mantis marries the vegetable zombie Avenger... In a double wedding ceremony with Wonder in the Vision. So one lunatic is marrying a robot. The other lunatic is marrying a vegetable ghost man to give birth to a vegetable Jesus. Mantis and her Katati husband then project their spirits out into space to shag amongst the stars. Um, once and their bodies collapse fly me to the looked moon. after by the so once they the have stars. once they have conceived a child in a <laughs> spiritual sense mantis's soul her spirit returns to earth and creates a vegetable kotati body a replica of her own form but now green in which she can grow the Kotati vegetable plant child and then give birth, which she does. She does all of that. And as soon as she gives birth, the Kotati, the priest of Pamar, go, we're going to take vegetable Jesus now and we're going to fly off into space and, and you'll never hear from us again. And she's just abandoned by everyone. This whole race, her alleged husband, the child, the Avengers forget about her as well. Um... Yeah, um, that's that insane mantis cycle. She then projects her soul back out into space because she's abandoned and resentful and bored of Earth. And she goes off and she has cosmic adventures in, in a couple of different green Kotati plant bodies. Um, she is she next she doesn't appear for like 25 30 years until annihilation conquest where she's one of the characters that abner and lanning and the other writers decide to uh, bring back into the fold um and nothing is mentioned of her vegetable body or plants or the katati or anything like that it's just she's a green chick she has actual antennae she's called mantis she has telepathic powers and can see the future and and she's a good she's a good really good character in that series going forward but 
That's the insane story of Mantis. Your own vegetable, oh, Jesus. God, I'm sorry, folks. I can't stop him. There's not a button that stops it from happening. How do you feel about the story of Mantis? That it deserves its own bonus episode, mate. What else do you think I feel? That's incredible. She's also a really interesting. So Steve Englehart, Angelheart, who created Mantis and wrote the Avengers for a long, long time. He's also the driving force behind like Wonder and Vision and stuff. We talked about him in the past. He he basically like takes the character with him. So when he goes to work for Eclipse Comics, mm. so Mantis has a very peculiar way of speaking. Mm. Um, it's not. Um, how does she speak? It's not like The Rock. It's third person, but not like The Rock. Oh, she doesn't say like Mantis knows how to do this. She says, "I am the one who knows how to do this." That kind of third person. Yeah. So placing importance on on herself, but still speaking in the first person. Yeah, not not I know how to do this. Not I Mantis am the, is one. the one. Not Mantis can do this. I am the one. I am the one. So when Steve Angelheart goes to works for uh, Eclipse Comics, he introduces a character that is essentially Mantis and speaks in Mantis's voice, but it has a different name, and says and does the same thing when he goes to DC Comics as well. And at DC Comics, this new character says, I cannot speak about the place that I have just come from, for I am not allowed. Oh, and, but I, and, but keeps all the speech yeah, patterns and yeah. slightly alters the look and appearance. And the idea is that Mantis's spirit in different bodies, darting around the multiverse. Um, the, inc- the, a, the extreme multiverse, which includes everything, apparently. Everything, yeah. I like that. That's... Uh... Sorry, some, a thought went into my head. It then uh, escaped. Let's get back to the film. What a what a tripping up! There's that was. no. I, I'm genuinely disappointed that there's no uh, vegetable Jesus in this movie. Well, unless you think that uh, Groot is some kind of deity who's re, who, who who came back no. to life after a few days. He is. He is. He is uh, the king of his people, though. Um. But not quite blessed by God. He's no. not the king of kings, Rob. Let's put it that way. Anyway, <laughs> we've had fun. We've had a lot of fun with blasphemy. Back now to- it's time for not. Are we going to stop having fun now? Yeah, What's no- the- <laughs> never start in a podcast. We'll never start your section right. by saying we've had fun. But now it's time for Will to speak. Right, stop the podcast. <laughs> it's got too silly. Sorry, Monty Python reference that I love. Uh, back at Bear Hut. Yondu's Ravengers have managed to sneak up on the Guardian ship under nightfall, but as they approach the wreckage, they trip some of Rocket's various traps with the raccoon watching from the tree line. Spotted by the Ravengers, Rocket evades their gunfire and activates more traps. After dispatching the Ravengers, Yondu makes an entrance with even more men surrounding the raccoon. Back at the ship, knowing that Yondu is going to kill Rocket, Nebula pleads with Groot to set her free so she can save them. Yondu hesitates to turn the Guardians over to sovereignty. His assistant Craglin is furious no matter how many times Quill betrays them. Yondu keeps giving him second chances. Yondu's lieutenant, Taserface, leads a mutiny with help from Nebula who tricked Groot. Just how deadly is Rocket in the comic books? Because this scene... He has. He seems to be like some kind of Sylvester, uh, some kind of uh, Rambo meets I don't know MacGyver. MacGyver. Yeah, MacGyver. Yeah. It's, it's the ingenuity 
uh, and we, we, we get it later on during the big fight as well. Yeah, I it, would say Rocket is unparalleled as a weapons expert and tactical genius. Yes, he has a vast personal armory from all over the galaxy. Um, from places that are far deadlier than you could ever imagine. Um, he, he has a mastery of cosmic weapons from hundreds of different worlds, and mm. he has the engineering skills to fix them, to rig up new weapons and explosives on the fly. I would put Comic Book Rocket up against Iron Man any day of the week. Oh, that would have been a good fight. When they have Iron Man joins the Guardians of the Galaxy for a brief period, mm. and when they have crossed paths, Rocket displays contempt for Iron Man's armor. <laughs> <laughs> it's so primitive; he mocks it. Um, and Rocket has a higher level of knowledge about this kind of engineering than Tony Stark has. Rocket can fix anything, fly anything, shoot anything. He has the right weapon for any situation. Mm. One time, he backed down Thanos. He had a gun designed to paralyze, and he threatens Thanos, knowing that Thanos does not fear death, welcomes death, loves death in the comics. He courts death, doesn't he? Thanos, he, he threatens Thanos not with death, but with an unending miserable life. Rocket threatens to paralyze, he's like, this gun will paralyze you just long enough for us to seal you in a cryogenic chamber and drop you in a gravity well at the edge of the universe where you'll never be allowed to die. And Thanos (laughs) backs down because Rocket is not one to mess with. Oh, Just a couple of things to add there. Uh, you're not a video game player but I'm sure many of our fans are there was a Guardians of the Galaxy there are two Guardians of the Galaxy video games I haven't played the new one but I did play the Telltale series one which is more story driven and Rocket really excels at that and the beginning it starts off with them killing Thanos it's a mental story that goes really well and of course it's one of Rocket's devices that kills him. It, he's very, of course. It, he's incredible. Also, this film, uh, I didn't put it in the production notes because it was kind of wee, but thought I'd add it here, that uh, unlike the first film, uh, the actor who played Rocket, can't remember his name now for really embarrassing reasons. Bradley Cooper's the voice actor. Incredibly handsome actor, Bradley Cooper, who did a great job voicing him for both films. They actually did the facial uh, motion capture for this, at least. I don't know if they did full motion capture, because of course it's a raccoon at Climb Street, but the, fa- the facial <coughs> capture, at the very least, was Bradley Cooper for this film. Well, here we go. I'm going to tell you a story about um, uh, Kragen. Kragen, yeah. Kragen is the character and this is the assistant who, who who's like emotional about why Yondu doesn't like keep siding with uh, and who is played by played by Sean Gunn, James who is Gunn's James brother. Gunn's brother. Yeah. Um, people like myself will know um, Sean Gunn from Gilmore Girls, where he played Kirk, um, a real scene stealing, funny character who was on that show for seven years, the whole run, um, and is like a real fan favorite if you if you're if you're a fan of Gilmore Girls. Um, he also plays, he does all the motion capture for Rocket. He plays Rocket in every Rocket movie. Yes, he's also, he also he's did the set. motion capture for Weasel in The Suicide Squad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, he ha- and he plays the calendar man in, in, in Suicide Squad as well. But oh. he does, he'll do two things. Yeah. And and it was, I, I just happened to be listening to a podcast that had him on by Michael Rosenbaum, who's also in this movie. 
right at the very end. We'll get to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Michael Rosenban is Lex Luthor in Smallville, and he is the voice of the Flash in a dozen different cartoons. Um, but they were talking all about his career, Sean Gunn's career. Mm. And he was like, he, he's saying how he was on Gilmore Girls for seven years and was like, this is brilliant. Um, and thought, surely from here, I'll be able to get even more work than I've had previously in my life. When Gilmore Girls come to an end, he couldn't get cast. He really struggled to get cast. He was getting like one thing a year. Oh, God. Um, He'd been a professional actor for 15 years, commercials and TV work. Gets Gilmore Girls the biggest break in, in his in his career. Successful for seven years. Big show, relatively, you know. Because mm. if you're not a success, you don't run for <laughs> two yeah. years or three years, but let alone seven. But when it ended, couldn't get cast anything. Lost his house. Oh, no. Because he couldn't... And, on the day he's like, I'm going to have to put up this Facebook advert looking for regular work. I'm going to have to start teaching acting classes, which he says, nothing against that, but that's almost a thing that's done by people who have retired or, you know, mm. it's a signal I can't get work anymore. And he's like ripped up inside about it. On the day he's about to start having to look for regular jobs, his brother, James Gunn, calls up and is like, okay. I've got this work for you, Guardians of the Galaxy. It's six months of work in London. You're going to be doing motion capture, and there's a role for you as well. Um, and uh, I thought that was just quite a nice... Uh, it didn't... He he does also talk about... Because he gets a proper arc here in, mm. in, in Volume 2. Oh, absolutely, yeah. They, they flesh him out a bit more. But he does talk about beyond that, because also the Gilmore Girls revival happened around the same time. Mm. He said... I still struggle to get work out <laughs> despite the fact I'm in this movie, I'm in this big Netflix show. It was a struggle to get other other work. It's ah, not it's not an easy industry at all. That's, I just thought that was a Yeah, that's that that, it just that ha- that's a shame. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I, I kept chipping over you again. We're all excited. Bloody hell. Anyway, back to the story. At Ego's Planet, Peter, Gamora and Drax are introduced to a veritable paradise of wonder. Ego reveals himself to be a celestial, a godlike being that can manipulate. Uh, uh, he doesn't. He doesn't. He, 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 the, the word is like a celestial being. Sorry, a celestial, not a celestial. Yes. Celestials are very specific in the Marvel universe. Okay, a celestial they're the giants. being. They're giants. A celestial yeah. being, a godlike being that can manipulate matter around him to form his own planet. As he grew stronger, Ego desired meaning and projected a humanoid disguise to. Sorry, humanoid guys to travel the universe and discover a purpose. Eventually, falling in love with Quill's mother, Meredith. After hearing about an Earthman handling an Infinity Stone without dying, Ego knew that Peter was his son and sought to find him. Even for a scene, obviously we've just done the action bits, we've just done all the big stuff. This is a this is the calm down exposition scene that we're explaining things. It's a good scene. It's it's calm, but it, but it's full of lots of stuff to look at and keep you interested. That's you, you've nailed it. it. Visual flair and motion um, really help exposition scenes. Yeah, because yeah, oh god, a film an exposition scene can really bog down a film. And I'm all, I've, I've, I'm starting to uh, subscribe more to the show don't tell attitude. Hundred percent, yeah, yeah. It, um, but some things you do have to tell because there's some complex backstory and lore. But speaking of complex backstory and lore, what can you tell us about Ego? Ego was created um, by Stanley and Jack Kirby in 19... 
66, I think, in the mid-60s, hmm. in, in, in issues of Thor. Um, he is not a small dude that can walk around. And it looks like he's mainly a, a Jack Kirby, I'm sure... This is a time, like, when it comes to the cosmic stuff, it's Kirby that seems to have the biggest hand in the creation. Um, and obviously the design, Kirby designed everything that he ever did, but... Kirby seemed to always have, like with Galactus, like with the Celestials, like with the Inhumans and, and all these uh, incredible characters, Kirby is always the slightly, I mean, I don't know how, but he was the much further outside the box in his thinking of these of these things and his, in his um, calling back and paying attention and, and, and alluding to like mythologies as, as, as well as what was going on in the science fiction world of magazines and, and, and dime novels and stuff. Mm. Um, Ego first appears on the last page of a Thor comic in a full page splash. Can you open up the um, first image that I've sent to you? This is the very first appearance of, of Ego, the living planet, and it is a photo collage. Ooh. Jack Kirby was making a lot of these around the time, using them quite a lot, in, in, in especially in Thor. So it is a combination of Kirby's artwork and also actual photographic um, art that he's incorporating in it. It's a real person's face that is kind yeah. of being used in the collage, superimposed on a on a on a bulbous planetoid. Um, it's it's a little disconcerting, isn't it? It's creepy. It's very yeah. eerie. It's foreboding as well. I I, I have to say because uh, I, I I I love stuff to do with planets and space travel. I always found like playing different games where when you're zooming through the black darkness of space and a planet slowly grows in front of you like it's a face coming at you. I always found that scary. I don't know yeah. why. It, it, it's just something like, oh my God, it's huge. It's getting bigger, 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 bigger. And then by the time it looks like the horizon, you're not scared of it anymore. But there's that moment that just freaks me out. And this captures that moment. It's like a face coming at you. I think... Um... Kirby had used, we talked about in our um, Rise of the Silver Surfer um, episode, mm. we talked about the Galactus trilogy, one of the most groundbreaking definitive moments in, in the history of Marvel. And, and Kirby had used a photo collage there when Johnny Storm is being whisked through the the universe or shown a different universe or something by the Watcher and Galactus, mm. they they Kirby superimposed um, the the comic book art of Johnny Storm onto a photo collage of a of a universe of planets, mm. and this it's suddenly reality and unreality mixing on a page. It's... You've gone from comic book artwork to real things, but with a the character you know imposed on it, and it creates this incredibly different environment to, yeah. to, to, to look at. It's almost uncanny valley, because you're seeing something real in something that isn't real. Yeah. Yeah. But it but it also creates the ideal suggestion and the impact of seeing even though it's our real world, you're viewing it through the lens of a comic book, and so you're you're seeing a bigger world, a different world, an alien world, in a way that's a lot more impactful than drawing an alien world. And I think it's the same use here with Ego, um, with the superimposing the features, the photographic features of a human onto this drawn um, planet is 
is freakish. It really is. It is absolutely freakish. And and another uh, example, it almost feels like you're rubbing it in my face that I can't (laughs) read Marvel comics. But I'll settle for Sandman, I'll settle for DC and all the other stuff. The consolation prize of this podcast, if you will. (laughs) Okay. Ego is referred to as being a bioverse. Every part of Uh. its substance including the atmosphere um, and and the ground, the rocks, the water, everything, is is, is controlled by the consciousness of, of, of ego. It can transform its surface to appear as a giant face when it wants to speak to people and address oh, powerful beings. Amazing. It can shape its terrain to suit what it wants to look like and the circumstances. Um it can it can manipulate the weather and it can grow plants as much as it wants. It can create earthquakes and volcanoes and all that kind of stuff. Um, it can become a um, a barren wasteland, a dangerous planet, or it can become a beautiful paradise to lure in unwitting travelers to its surface. Um, That's so scary. When you yeah, when you learn the the history, um, there've been a, the, as of the revised history. Um, do you remember when Magneto got kidnapped by an alien and whisked off to space because Stanley couldn't think of anything else to do with him? That, yeah, that was, sounds like something Stanley would do, but that was by a, a cosmic creature called the Stranger. Okay, um, the Stranger visits this um, this star uh, to conduct an experiment that would eventually cause the star to go nova and destroy the twin planets orbiting it. Okay. A scientist on one of these planets called Egros started to work on ways to save his race from impending doom. However, he failed. And when the star went nova and the planets combined and all of this ex- cosmic experimentation took place, Egros was merged with every living thing destroyed by the sun, including his own race, the animals, the plant life, and a new consciousness emerged, becoming Ego. Um, When we first meet Ego, it's inside something called the Black Galaxy, and Ego starts has absorbed various space vessels and planets just on the edge of the Black Galaxy, um, absorbing them into his own being, mm. becoming stronger, and sending out armies of antibodies to conquer other worlds. Ah, oh, um, God, that's Thor, frightening. Yeah, Thor uh, is 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 recruited to help and fight Ego. He fights the antibodies, and he summons a storm powerful enough to stun and hurt Ego. Um, Ego thinks he can is the only one that can control the weather and climate on his planet, but here comes the God of Thunder. Uh, Ego is like humiliated by this, so he gives Thor his word he'll never leave the Black Galaxy again. He'll stay where he is. Um, and then, uh, late the same year, a weakened Galactus has like invades Ego ego space to consume ego to kill him and consume him like he wanted to do to earth and this time thor is called to help ego and drive galactus off which he he manages to do um in gratitude ego allows its surface to become a new home for a group of interstellar nomads called the wanderers Mm. the wanderers are a, a group of the very the the very first races whose planets were destroyed and devoured by Galactus billions of years ago, and they've 
they've nomadically kind of toured through the universe with no home for billions of years while ego transforms part of himself into an absolute paradise for them to kind of live on mm. um and he's been a he's been a constant cosmic issue um of various yeah more often than not a a horrifying threat oh um, as the as the decades go on i mean absolutely i mean and i i like the fact it's called ego that is such an apt name a planet that's a person ego well there were two planets to begin with yeah and the stranger conducted experiments on both of them the other twin planets became alter ego oh i thought you were gonna say <laughs> id id i know that would have been so much better wouldn't it yeah because of the whole uh who was that psychiatrist called again from austria who, who created that? i wanted to shag his mom yeah, that that the mum shagger. Freud. 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 Sig- Dr. Sigmund Freud, yeah. Anyway. Siggy. <laughs> Did you just make a Bill and Ted reference? Yeah, maybe. Okay, well, I so, know. that's a yes. Anyway, back to the film. Back on board Yondu's ship, Taserface imprisons Rocket and Yondu and executes Yondu's loyalists by releasing them into the cold horrible. vacuum of space. It is a horrible death. That Especially when it's they- impending. And they they tee up what something they 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 show you how horrible it is here, and then they do it to a character you you have grown to love at the end. Yeah, no no chill on these guys here. Absolutely. no chill in James Gunn. It's it's horrible because I mean there there have been so many little not debates but like or oh, what does happen to a body in the cold hard vacuum space, and for decades we thought oh you just inflate and blow up because of depressurization, but it's not true. You just die because <laughs> of so many different different things mm. yeah and yeah. i always thought that this was the most i mean in the previous one we see like the body crystalling up because it's cold i always thought that was a more re- believable in the first film re- uh, depiction of death in space but anyway nebula stops an enraged taser face from killing rocket by arguing that the high priestess wants to kill him herself nebula rebuilds her cybernetic arm and explains to craglin that as a child thanos would make her fight gamora every time gamora would win thanos would replace a piece of nebula with machinery nebula curses gamora for never going easy on her for never once letting her win and sparing her the pain Gamora takes one of the Ravager ships, saying she's going to kill her sister. Sorry, is that Nebula? Should have been. I think you changed some of the notes here. What am I, what am I reading here? Uh, I'm reading... Uh, I, sorry, it's Nebula. Nebula takes one of the Ravager ships, saying she's going to kill her sister, and then hunt down and murder Thanos herself. So, uh, again, very funny scene here. Uh, he knows how to do comedy. He knows how to do comedy, uh, James Gunn. Remember Which, the uh, you, the, uh, <laughs> the taser face bit? Yes, or with, with rocket tied to the chair. Oh, that, that was such a good. Sorry, I should have should have led in with that. Is there is a funny? Basically, it's just you've got this horrible stuff happening, people being killed, a mutiny happening, and then he's like, people should know and tremble for the name taser face, and then rockets dying in laughter, and then it just goes off on one, and the people are starting to agree that maybe it's not such a fearsome name. <laughs> It's great, yeah. It's a great little scene. So, is Nebula's origin story in the comic books like this? Was she pitted against Gamora as a child? No, Nebula and Gamora are not related in the comic books. Okay. Uh, in fact, I don't think they ever met until like 2006, um, despite the fact they've been both been around since the, 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 the 70s, 80s. Um, 
Nebula is, we've discussed it before, she's a psychotic space pirate. Yes. Who rises to prominence once Thanos is dead. She steals his old ship, which is vastly powerful, massive, huge thing, the size of a city, um, and crashes around the universe, causing death and, and mayhem and destruction, and spreads this story that only comes from her. This myth, you might say, that she is Thanos's granddaughter. Ah, okay. But there's zero evidence that this is true. Right. No one else backs it up. Um, and it's assumed that she is spreading the story to, like a pirate does, strike fear into the hearts of the enemy so that other ships will simply surrender when she arrives. Mm. And she really does set out to... Basically what happened is Thanos was killed off and it felt like the people writing the, the, the Avengers and things went, we need like a new threat to replace Thanos. What uh... if we create Lady Thanos? Um... And so she's also blue and all that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, so, that being said, uh, when Thanos returns from the dead and meets Nebula for the first time, he hears her claim to be his granddaughter and responds by burning her alive. Um, he tortures her and burns her nearly to death. She doesn't die. She, he kind of keeps her around in this horrible state in the uh, in in the bowels of his ship, and then throughout the Infinity Gauntlet saga, uh, he keeps torturing her for for making this claim to be related to him. Oh wow, he badass! So back on his planet, Ego has a heart to heart with his son Peter and tries to make amends for leaving his mother alone to die of cancer. As a way of bonding with him after so much lost time, Ego teaches Quill to manipulate the celestial power and the two play a father-son game of catch. As Drax and Mantis bond, she feels the need to tell him something urgent but is interrupted by Gamora. As Mantis takes the two guardians on a tour of the nearby garden, Gamora tries to get the urgent information out of her, but Mantis pretends she doesn't know what Gamora is talking about. This is... I. I the, the wife walked in when I was watching this bit, um, the father-son game of catch, and we we were kind of on the cusp of it's a bit cheesy, but in the context of everything that's just happened, it's so pitch perfect. This I, little bit, it, I, I, it hits me as being very cheesy because it's an American thing I can't relate to. Very American thing you can't relate to, but you get past that, you understand the, the context. It's a, the, it's a the long lost having thing. The having a catch crops up in goddamn every movie and sitcom and everything you see that's a, that's about an American family. It's having a catch crops up is some, and that's not a thing we have over here. Uh, kicking a ball around is is our our equivalent. Kick a ball, yeah. Um, yep, yep. And if it had been kicking a ball around, perhaps I would have uh, seen it a bit differently. <laughs> All I can imagine um, now is ego with a cigarette in his a cigarette in his mouth, going, "Let's have a kickabout. You want a couple of kickabouts? Go to yeah. the wall. Go to go to the garage." Uh, yeah, I, 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 I don't know if I'm sold on it hitting just right. I, I thought it was cheesy. Ah, uh, I don't know. I think there, were, I think there was some resonation there, but fair enough, fair enough. I managed to get you. I actually, I, I haven't managed to get you to do anything. I'm just happy that you've finally gone. <laughs> uh, it's actually a pretty good film. <laughs> anyway, 
On Yondu's ship, Rocket is locked in a cell with the former Ravager leader and questions why Yondu didn't deliver Peter to Ego as instructed. Yondu simply replies that the young Earth boy was useful to them. After being tortured and humiliated by Taserface's Ravagers, Groot skulks past Yondu in Rocket's cell. Yondu figures that they could use Groot to help them escape. After several crossed wires, Groot retrieves Yondu's prototype Finn with the help of Kraglin, who's not in favour of the Ravager's new leader, and apologises to his former commander. With the new Finn installed, Yondu leads a breakout, commanding his mind-controlled arrow again, killing everyone in his path. Just it's before- not mind-controlled, just to... It's not mind-controlled. It's whistle-controlled. It's whistle. sonic-controlled. Okay, that's lovely. It's, it's metal that responds to sonic's vibrations, and the specific way he whistles tells it where to go and how fast. That's good world building. <laughs> it's inaccurate, and I corrected it. What would you want me to do? No, <laughs> oh, ego is a celestial. Yondu has got mental powers. I can't have that. I'm sorry. I'm still recovering from vegetable Jesus. <laughs> I've still got that swirling in the noggin, so leave me be. Just before Rocket, Yondu, Groot, and Kraglin escape the ship, a mortally wounded Taserface gives the Sovereign the coordinates for Yondu's escape ship. As the rest of Yondu's ship explodes, the escape portion rockets through 700 jump gates to find the rest of the Guardians on Ego. I I love that the final... As he does his final FU, Taserface. Yeah. We get another tiny appearance of the Sovereign people and another bit of building of who they are. She laughs in his face rather than have any compassion yeah. rather than thank him she just laughs at him because of the name Taserface but yeah but, but it also gives the impression that they are this they think they're better than everyone yeah. they're above everyone all of this I that was great oh, I, I just saw it as a bit of a callback to the whole Taserface thing I think, anyway. I think, but it's, that, I think that's it's both a, it's both that's really good that's really good uh, I really loved when they kept giving Groot instructions and each time he came back with something oh, worse until he just those, are my, those are my underpants <laughs> those are my underpants that's not what I told you he thinks she, he thinks she wants to, to wear it as a hat why would I want him to wear it as a hat and then it goes off to have that tangent of he hates people wearing hats he, he hates thinks hats. it's part of their head he thinks it's part of their head then it isn't is that why you hate hats yeah, it is, yeah. No, I, I just like it when he comes back with a severed toe and it's like um, <laughs> it was just priceless. Great scene, yeah. Great scene. So, Taserface, very stupid name. Is he a comic book character? Please take a look at the uh, second image I've sent oh, you. Oh, God, here we. Oh, my Lord. Taserface first appears in the Guardians of the Galaxy issue one, the second volume in 1990, which is uh, kind of done by Jim Valentino. Um, so Jim Valentino stated that his son Aaron Valentino, we're getting to the nub of the name now. Yeah. Aaron Valentino, who was five years old at the time, came up with the name Taserface. <laughs> and Jim Valentino thought the name was kind of lame, but no worse than Pruneface, Clayface, Two Face, or any other character in the comic book world yeah. with the uh, the word face as part of their name. Um can, I, can you describe what Taserface looks like in that picture? God, this feels like an episode of Obscure Marvel, Obscure Marvel which yeah. you all should uh, sign up to Patreon to listen to. Okay, uh, oh, where do I even start? I'm going to start from the boots up. 
He's got some red boots that show off some muscly calves. Then there's yellow goldenish uh, leggings above that. But the knee pads are an upside down shield with a horn poking out at where the kneecap is. And then we've got like a little utility belt of it. He's wearing a black tunic with right, red, red piping. He's got yellow gold uh arms and a red metallic uh arm with hand with like uh he's specs. wearing a big a big suit of metal armor suit metal armor and then he's got like a one of his hands has been sort of either replaced with a gun or i don't know it looks like it's been replaced with a gun with so many different attachments and then he's got a, <laughs> then he's got like these two big earrings a kind of wrestling helmet on uh, with a big purple ponytail a big red cape there's a lot going on here I'm not going to lie does does anything strike you as familiar about what he's wearing um, it might I don't know if it'll resonate I, I thought the, the what he's wearing on his head looked like what Jean Grey wears in the X-Men cartoon uh, no it's not that okay. he's wearing classic red and gold armor oh we've talked about this before is this to do with iron man or something else or a typical bad guy uh color color code it's iron man right it's iron man. Okay. so so it's not necessarily to do with color codes he's wearing red and gold iron man armor right. because Taserface comes from a a race of creatures in the future called the stark so this is a planet inhabited by primitive beings when one day through a wormhole a cachet of stark tony stark tech and armor washes up basically on their planet and these in primitive inhabit inhabitants quickly adapt themselves to how to use and engineer the new technology and they rename themselves the stark and they hold Tony Stark up as their idol. So in the Guardians of the Galaxy, in, in the 1990s, in the future, there's this whole race of, like, bedraggled mercenaries and space pirates with Iron Man tech. And they, <laughs> some of them just have an Iron Man gauntlet. Some of them have the boots and a knife. Some of them have all different parts of their... And all their tech is Stark tech, and they are the Stark. And they use it to, you know, conquer other planets and raid ships and stuff. A very cool concept jim valentino that 1990s uh guardians of the galaxy series is lovely um and Taserface is like one of the advanced i don't know he's, he's one of the the bad guys from the stark he gets beaten by um the uh the, the guardians of the galaxy and as punishment for his defeat he's not only like tortured by the stark but they strip him of his name he's no longer allowed Ooh. to be Taserface, and he for a little bit goes by the name of the nameless one and and tries to get revenge on on the guardians of the galaxy he then returns as a cyborg um with stark tech now as part of his body yeah and that time he's called Overkill. Oh, and this is that's a good name. This is because when the character first appeared, Jim Valentino saw a lot of letters from fans and reactions from other writers saying that his design of Taserface was complete overkill. So he renamed the new character with even more stuff hanging off his body, Overkill. Bloody um, hell. A lovely, I thought that was a lovely little uh, journey through the name Taserface. That is a good, that is a good, there's so many little journeys through characters here. Uh, still think. And even more at patreon.com slash Marvel vs. Marvel. Even more, even more. So sign up today. Do the right thing. Back to the story. After arguing with Peter about Ego's role as a father figure, Gamora heads out to the countryside to think 
and is attacked by a ship piloted by Nebula. After forcing her sister's ship to crash in a cave, Gamora is almost killed by Nebula, who stops at the last second. Nebula explains the pain of Thanos ripping her eyes out and tearing off her arm because Gamora kept beating her in combat. Nebula says that all she ever wanted was a sister. The next second, Gamora notice a, notices a grim spectacle in the cave. A towering mound of skeletons of various races. They need to get off this planet. Meanwhile, Ego explains to Quill that they are both immortal as long as the light within Ego's planet still exists. Ego says that the two of them together can remake the universe and lead it where it needs to go. So we're seeing a lot of emotional uh, tender moments with Gamora in this movie. Is this is what sh- is this what she's like in the comics? <clears throat> Absolutely not. <laughs> I couldn't get any further from it. Um, okay. And I have a mild mild sort of a rant here. I don't get what Gamora is supposed to be in these movies. Right. It's outside a, it's, outside of the traditional female f- companion for the lead, right? Yeah. I like the actor. I like I love the relationship with Nebula. Um but I don't get her origin. Like at no I just don't get it. I because I because of what she is in the comic books, I expected Gamora to be a complete badass. And she isn't in that first movie. Like she's thrown into prison, she's kind of cowering and scared and needs help and like they ne- there's never a thing as a line where they say Gamora has been raised to be a deadly uh, I mean in this movie we kind of hear that she had to fight her sister a lot, mm. but it's never like she was Thanos's top m- assassin or mercenary or do we don't I don't so I don't know who is she? What? Why? Why did Thanos take her in and raise her? What was she there yeah. to do? What was she? Yeah, and yeah, she can fight as good as just about everyone in the MC. Like all the Guardians can fight pretty well, right? Um, she's not like a super assassin or anything. Okay, and she's got the the quippy dialogue and everything that everyone seems to have. So it's not like she's a dull character. I don't like seeing her around, but I don't. And um, and it's possible I'm shaded by the character from the comic books, so I'm I'm admitting I might have you know some kind of a problem here. But the amount of tender emotional workload she does for Star Lord in this movie, mm. I find weird. Okay, I find that her it feels like she's there to be the emotional female companion to the lead. Yeah, um, and it just I and I I actually quite like their little some of their little you know, flirtations. That's okay, but I don't know, man. It just bugged me in this movie more than it more than it had done in a while. I have to say, it didn't bug me. It I I it didn't really stick out for me. I can understand now from your perspective. I can understand that bugging now. But at the time, even my last watch, I was like, oh, they're like family. They're helping each other out. That's what I thought. Yeah, it's the I'm. I might be having. I might have anti-patriarchal blinders on, or something. I don't quite know. It just feels like she has to do an awful lot of emotional heavy lifting. Yeah, yeah. to help out the stunt, the emotionally stunted male character, the emo- just emotionally stunted man child. They're, and they all, they're they all yeah. like there's a there's a there's a scene where they're all joking. There's a scene where they're all joking about turds yeah. at the start. Like they cut to Gamora, and she has to be the one to say. 
oh, we're joking about this. And that hit me a little bit like, mm, don't make her the buzzkill, man. Um, anyway, <laughs> 616 Marvel Comics Gamora is the most dangerous woman in the galaxy. That's what she is known as. Um, she is I don't she is raised by uh Thanos to be well, actually we'll get to that D- during the second annihilation war we're talking about her character aren't we and what her personality is like she's kind of like a morally gray killer who has helped to save the universe from massive threats but in that way where it's like, oh, I have to help save the universe because if I don't, I'll die too, right? Um, but she's also been a deadly assassin. During the Second Annihilation War, um, Gamora gets... Pos- so right before the Guardians of the Galaxy comic book starts in 2008, Gamora is, during that war, she's possessed by um, this techno-organic hive mind known as the Phalanx. Um, and it's said to be something that goes beyond mind control beyond brainwashing it's it's not something that you want to fight your way out of it you're part of a huge organism you have constant like affirmation and constant companionship and you have a cosmic purpose that you believe in mm-hmm. right and throughout that war she fought against friends and allies and killed them um she's freed towards the end of that war but this freedom actually causes her a, a huge amount of distress. Gamora okay. is completely um, shaken to her core by this possession that she went through. Mm. When she was part of the phalanx, she had a purpose for the first time in her life. Right. And with without that hive mind that she belongs to, she has no drive, has no direction, and she longs for the constant companionship that she experienced when she was a part of this phalanx hive mind. Right, okay. That's why the Guardians of the Galaxy is something she really wants to be a part of. Despite the fact she's not the kind of person that liked friends and had friends and she was a you know, she was a, a deadly assassin. She's got no love for Star Lord, but like he comes to her with this this chance to be part of something bigger than herself and to have that drive and that companionship again. Um, yeah, but she's not she's not a tender person that gives him emotional advice about how he feels. <laughs> that's that's not quite who she is. She's broken, like they all are when 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 this two thousand eight series starts. But um, yeah, very different. Very different. Okay, okay, I can understand the bugging for sure now. Back to the film. After seeing Ego explain his pay, his plan for Peter to him, Mantis tries to wake up Drax to warn him about Ego, but is suddenly tackled by Gamora, who demands answers. Shivering, Mantis reveals the truth. The bodies in the cave are Ego's children. Yondu, Rocket and Groot finish their insane star jumps and arrive close to Ego's planet. Yondu and Rocket get into a big argument, with Yondu exposing all of Rocket's insecurities. Yondu tells Rocket that he was created by people that didn't care about him and then abused and tortured just to see what would happen. He says that Rocket pushes away anyone who gets close to him because even a little bit of love reminds him how big and empty the hole inside of him is. Yondu explains his own parents sold him into slavery and says that him and Rocket are the same kind of broken person. 
they get ready to save their friends. I just want to say, yikes, this movie gets a bit dark with the skeleton pile of children in the cave. Yeah. Dark. Yeah. That, is, that is incredibly dark. Um, yeah. We also start to get, like, baby group murdering people. <laughs> like, oh, it gets, it's, it's from, from here it really does start to get full on. But, I mean, baby group murdering people, they've set up the you know the reason for him murdering people they were horrible to him so you know but it's still dark we get what we get what we get is a scene we've well we've had we've had that scene haven't we we have we have that scene where they murder every single person on that on that ship i mean i know they're pirates but we see our lead characters Murdering every again and just constant murder. He's going to, have to start a, a new wild, the crew. Man. He's going to, have to start a new crew as well. After all that, but then again, you don't no. want to have anybody who's <laughs> led a mutiny against you or anything. No, you don't. Exactly. You got to start from scratch with crews. Uh, this conversation between Yondu and Rocket was very good. Very surprising. Yeah, man. Yeah. Um, I think again, I, again, it's this. There's an awful lot of deep stuff going on here about families, yeah, um, and about the biggest lesson I think that you get to learn in life. One of the biggest lessons is that hurt people hurt people. Yeah, um, that's a that's a very concise way of putting it. And often. It's hard to see how our own actions hurt other people around us and, and understand why we do it. And it's vastly a, a defense mechanism. Mm. But um yeah, Yondo becoming the kind of um the wise one uh in in this movie is, is quite interesting. The one that's actually kind of knows why he does all his own BS. Even if he'd not been able to correct his actions yet, he knows why he pushes people away and hurts people and doesn't let people get close to him and stuff like that. Um, yeah, big, big, big stuff going on in this movie. Incredibly big. So is Yondu like this in the original stories? No! Oh. Um, take a look at the third image that I've sent to you to see the original Yondu. Whoa, um. he looks sexy. <laughs> okay, what can I? Where can I start from? He's got the pirate boots on. Those weird pirate boots that pop up everywhere. In pirate boots are very big in Marvel. I don't get it. I don't. I do not get it. Anyway, he's mostly blue. He's got a bow and arrow. He is very hench. He's got a golden cummerbund and some gauntlets, but he does have the very red big sort of mohawk fin. giant fin fin across it i mean even bigger Not, than the one he has in this film even bigger well in this film it's like that big it's just a, it's just a little it's like you say it's like a little tiny mohawk no he has a little nubbin sail then then he, then he has a then he has the bigger one but this is even bigger than the bigger one in this film crazy yeah massive um so Yondu is a part of the original Guardians of the Galaxy 1969 team. Okay. You tend to now call them the 69 team and the 08 team, nice. um, just for brevity, because it's hard to explain how it all works with time and everything. Um, when uh, that astronaut from Earth lands um, uh, in in the future on, on an Alpha Centauri kind of planet, the first race that he encounters are these blue-skinned alien natives who have had their homes taken away from them by the Badoon. 
and they are written in the 60s uh, and the 70s as noble savages um a horrible trope that was insensitive and not very educated trope they're very problematic yondu's character and all the characters of his race in in the 70s noble savage is used again and again Mm. um they're spoken down to by the other humans they all use bows and arrows and their land has been stolen by invaders it's pretty clear they're meant to be stand-ins for a kind of a native american type struggle yeah um but it's not written and handled well at all, as you can imagine, by unenlightened white people writing about, you know, a Native American struggle. In the 60s. Um, an indigenous personal struggle. In the, well, yeah, 70s. I mean, I'm not sure how much of it is in that first issue. And then they don't appear again until 75. Yeah. Um, so Yondu is one of these centurions, centurions, who join uh, Vance Astro and... Um, and the other Guardians of the Galaxy to fight the Badoon, and it's quite an embarrassing, narrow-minded way he's written. I guess it's probably similar to how the Native Americans were written in cowboy movies in in the sixties and seventies. Mm. You know, I don't I don't ever think of any of those being particularly enlightened yeah. and holding up terribly well. In the nineties, when the Guardians were, were were relaunched by Jim Valentino, there's there's even a scene which I remember distinctly as a kid. There's a scene where Vance Astro, who is the the guy from the the, the astronaut guy who flung into the future, he takes Yondu to one side and apologizes to Yondu for how he used to treat him. Wow. And it's a scene that's essentially Vance Astro is 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 here to speak is here to kind of basically stand in for the way the stories used to treat Yondu mm. and the Centaurans as and Native Americans. And he says, I used to think you were a savage. I used to talk down to you. Um, and he begs Yondu's forgiveness for being so bigoted and treating him so poorly. Um, and I really remember that connecting with me as a kid. Mm. Um, as, uh, you know, and I, I had access to this comics from the 70s as well and, and saw how when they relaunched the characters in the 90s, obviously they had to go, we cannot write yondu and the centaurans like that that's really embarrassing and really Mm. a shameful way of writing about them if they're going to be this native american indigenous people kind of um allegory um but anyway this all takes place in the far-flung uh future hundreds and thousands and thousands of years after star lord forms the the guardians of the galaxy in 2008 so yondu has nothing to do with star lord until the year after the first movie comes out, uh, 2015, yeah. Marvel decides they need to try and make the comic books match the movies, as they do quite often. So they introduce a retcon where we meet the great, 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 hang on, the great, 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 great grandfather of Yondu, a character who is also called Yondu. <laughs> and this Yondu looks exactly like the guy in the movies. And is a part of the Ravagers, which which Yondu, the classic Yondu, is not. Um, and they introduce a retcon now where Peter Quill is abducted from Earth and rescued by Yondu and the Ravagers and raised by him and, and all that stuff that was never present in, in the original stories. Um, have we talked about Marvel's 
long narrative form and, and avoiding retconning. So they actually just turned around and retconned it. I, I've softened how I use the word retcon because I can't be bothered to go through the explanation again. But it isn't exactly um, a retcon, time. but the closest thing to it is a retcon. I, 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 I think also perhaps, I think I'm a bit too strict on how I view a retcon. I view the way DC do retcons as they change the universe so things that once happened never happened. Mm. Marvel tends to reveal information you didn't previously know. Yeah. and But that doesn't contradict something. It's very rare that... Or if there is, they'll... They'll introduce some. There are some. Vision is a big one. Yeah. I think we talked about that in our Wonder and Vision ep- episode because there were two Vision, two human talk. I can't go into all that. It's, it, it, for brevity, I'm saying retcon. So and, and it it's is a soft I mean, retcon, but I totally understand what you. I just needed to make sure of that. Yeah, I, it, it was never. I don't think they'd. Because Star Lord was launched in such a weird way mm. in something that wasn't exactly a comic book. It was a Marvel magazine, mm. which doesn't count as Marvel continuity. And then the character was like barely touched for, I don't think it was touched for like 30, 40 years. There's space to, 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 his backstory is not important in Annihilation. It's not important in Annihilation Conquest. And it's not important in the Guardians of the Galaxy comic book. Like who, you know, there's nothing to, like it doesn't really matter. He's just bang. Here he is fighting, fighting stuff and trying to save everybody. Mm. Um, so there is a way of going. Oh, you know what? We never talked about his childhood. Let's try and make it match the movie as much as we can with this ancestor of Yondu. Cool. That works for me. I like that explanation. Back to the film. Ego reveals to Peter that in his travels he planted seedlings on thousands of worlds that can terraform into new extensions of himself. But only the power of two celestials can activate them. To that end, he impregnated countless women and hired Yondu to collect the children for which he was exiled for, but killed them all when they failed to access the celestial power. At first, under Ego's influence, Quill fights back when Ego reveals that he gave Meredith the tumour that killed her due to the distraction she posed, forcing Ego to parasitically withdraw Quill's energy to activate the seedlings which begin to consume every world. Ego tells Quill he will spend the next thousand years as a battery. Again, getting getting dark. It gets even darker here. That tumour bit was really... Ooh, that hit. I mean, they, re- they revealed that he purposefully gave his mum cancer. That was, in the cinema, there was that, ooh, noise going. We were just like... Really? That is such... A horrible thing you can do to someone. Yeah. And also it's one that resonates with, I think, an audience in a way that gruesome deaths don't. There's a mm. thing you'll do in wrestling where like you can do it an audience can't an audience in the wrestling world, I can't I can't go, oh what an audience doesn't know what a suplex feels like or a, yeah. or a or a power bomb feels like. But when you do a big open palm slap on someone's you slap someone across the face yeah. or when you grab their fingers and pull yes. their fingers apart or kick them in the balls or stomp on their foot or rake their eyes or pull their hair the audience kind of is almost like you go, oh, I know what that feels like. Yeah. Oh, I have more of an emotional. I go, oh, you have that response because you know what those feels like. And I think there's something a little bit similar in 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 using. You know, one in three people have this 
will will experience a, a ca- cancer in their lifetime. Um, so using that rather than a gruesome death, like I blew her up or I shot her or I threw her into the sun, it's a very, you know, we can't really feel what that's what that's like. It's a very human experience, is what we're yeah. having here, and one which you you know, okay, you, you can't give it to someone just like that, but the idea of doing that as well is just even worse. Mm. Also, uh, when the seedlings activate, especially on Earth, where were the Avengers? Well, this all happened. I, I knew you were going to ask this question. Yeah. This all happened in like a, like an hour or maybe two. Yeah, true. But I don't know. It's I, not like it was there for a day or multiple days or. Ah, fair enough. I was just there. It's one of those bits where I'm just watching it back and going, "Oh, this bit was." I mean, it's an intense bit to watch because so much destruction is happening across the galaxy and then you're there going surely the avengers would come out at some point he's watching when i watch this again and and i thought i don't know it's it's just a bit odd now looking back at it but you can you can imagine how it would take time for them to get there it takes time to get there and to be fair narratively it would just mess up things and we go oh what we're now focusing on the avengers now no this is a guardians of the galaxy film yeah 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 so has ego ever done anything like that in the comics because that is insane the seedling, uh, well, in, in his, his original desire is to kind of absorb moons and, and, and planets and, and spaceships into his bioverse and, and uh, essentially kind of expand his consciousness. He wants to become, he wants to get bigger and become a solar system, um, mm. I think, to begin with. Um, and then the, there's a, a, a race of aliens called the Rigelians, and uh, Tanner Nile, who is a, a, a Thor character in different ways for a lot of times who's a Rigelian she takes a sample of Ego's um, uh, saplings his form Mm. dirt something like that and she tries to plant this all around on 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 um, barren worlds, sterile worlds, to terraform them. Yeah. Um, and to take root and to kind of a little bit similar to what goes on in this in this movie here, but doing this drives ego insane, and he starts to lash out and destroy other uh, ships and, and travelers and worlds and mm. stuff. Um, and he. Hmm. Well, Galactus turns him into a giant car and drives him around the universe. That happens. What? So, Ego's gone mad because there's this attempt to use him to terraform. Yeah. Um, and what he does is he gives into his primordial urges and he consumes the wanderers that are living on his planet that mm. got him this kind of like reprieve from Thor and Galactus and all of that. He absorbs the Wanderers into his consciousness and sucks them into the planet and breaks their bodies down to be part of Ego. Um, and it continues to go mad. And Galactus comes flying back to, uh, I guess, to essentially punish Ego. And Thor sides with Galactus this time. Um, and what happens, Thor and Hercules and Fire Lord, one of Galactus's um, heralds, Keep Galact, keep ego distracted, and hold him off for long enough for Galactus to attach an engine at the South Pole, <laughs> <laughs> a massive starship engine that he plugs into the South Pole, and then he uses it to drive ego the planet constantly through space, never stopping, and thereby preventing it from being a threat to. To other other populated sections of the universe. Sorry, that just sounded like an episode of Futurama. <laughs> that that was 
I like that. That's brilliant. Off he goes driving round. <laughs> Never stopping. I just don't imagine him needing a car. But anyway, I'll get. I'll continue with the story. Oh no, um, Galactus doesn't ride him. Oh, he just sets him off. I see ya. That's even worse. He just put a brick on the accelerator. He's put a brick on the accelerator. That's gonna, exactly what he's, he's done. He's going to get the insurance back when he yeah. go crashes. It's like when that milk float wouldn't stop. Yeah, that's what it's like. <laughs> very, very subtle Father Ted reference. Back to the film. As Peter's energy is drawn away by Ego, the rest of the Guardians regroup and attack the Celestial Being, saving Peter. Knowing that the only way to kill Ego is to attack his brain beneath the surface of the planet, Yondu flies one of his smaller craft into the centre of the planet. Meanwhile, on Yondu's ship orbiting Ego, Kraglin is startled by the arrival of a sovereign fleet arriving to take down the Guardians. However, he's unable to reach Yondu as his boss is underneath the surface of the planet. Yondu's craft arrives at Ego's core and starts laser mining into it but he is suddenly interrupted by Kragling, finally getting a clear signal to re- Yondu's radio. The Sovereign fleet are on their way. A second later, they are ambushed by the fleet and Yondu is forced to manoeuvre away, prompting an intense, intense pursuit. A Sovereign ship blasts a hole in the side of the craft, causing Drax, Gamora and Mantis to fly out and land in the core. Remembering he still has the Sovereign batteries he stole, Rocket constructs a bomb to take out Ego's core and flies out of the craft with Peter. Only on this recent rewatch, I I can really appreciate how much of a good callback the Sovereign batteries were. It also fits into... um, uh to Ego wanting to use Pete like a battery as well. Ah, double callback. There we go. It's all it's all it's battery all, themed, isn't it? It's all connected. It's all connected. The, so the Guardians are like completely surrounded here. I mean, the odds are stacked against them. Does this sort? Does this? Is this like this in the Marvel comics? Are they in this sort of situation? Yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. Hell yeah. The 2008 team. They're doing something that nobody in the Marvel Universe believes in or sees value in or uh, trusts them to do. Yeah. So they're, they're, they have opposition on all sides, even if the opposition isn't always like an antagonist. Like They're alone in trying to hold the universe together, and they can't get anyone else to believe them and work with them. Even when you know this is definitely happening and 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 everything's breaking down, and but but it's trying to talk empires out of war is mm. so difficult. Um, Abner and Lanning put a lot of work, I think, into painting the Guardians of the Galaxy as as veterans of two wars, like honored veterans, mm. right? But they're now trying to plead with everyone to stop fighting. Yeah, they have the moral, all the moral high ground in the world. They should be listened to and trusted. But it's it's like the case of forgotten veterans. Yeah, they're only good when they're serving a, a government's purpose. Mm. They're only good for the war they fought, and 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 we want to hold them up on a pedestal as heroes and blast the trumpets and use their image to get more people to join the army. The last thing we're going to do is listen to them when they say, you've got to stop fighting. 
Um, and there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a good bit of that in 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 that Guardian series. The, the Guardians of the Galaxy, the O eight team are effed from all sides right from the get go. Terrifying threats on multiple fronts. Absolutely no help and no support from anyone else in the universe. Um, it it's a story of Peter Quill trying to hold the universe together with his bare hands and he can barely keep his own team together it's um it's great i'm really looking forward to us doing that episode on on patreon oh fantastic i can't wait ego charges up to attack drax gamora and mantis but the empath is able to lull ego into a sleep but she's not sure how long she can keep the celestial being in this state for Realising that the holes into Ego's brain are too small, Rocket orders Groot, with some difficulty, to plant the bomb inside the brain. After the fight with the Sovereign turns south, Yondu's craft is surrounded by their fleet, but at the last moment, Nebula jacks into the craft's computer and launches a devastating wave of lasers that destroys all the Sovereign ships in seconds, but at the expense of Yondu's craft. And this is, the, of, of course, the bit where we get the I'm Mary Poppins, y'all. It's funny. It's funny. Come on. I also think, again, upon rewatching it, there's a look on uh, Chris Pratt's face when he delivers it. I, I think there's 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 a big there's an emotional thing going on as well. Like he says it to make fun of Yondo. Yeah. And then when Yondo says, "Like is Mary Poppins? Who's Mary Poppins? Is he cool? Is he cool? Is there's he a cool? look. There's a look <laughs> on his face." Where you realise he regrets that he's making fun of him, and he 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 can't change, and he just goes, yeah, I know, yeah, he's the coolest. He's coolest. Like there's that there's that yeah. moment of 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 turning it around and not making fun of his dad, um, and there's a there's yeah. there's, there's also a, a resonance of to a lot of people, your parents never know who you're talking about yes. and what references you're making, yes. and they're always going, oh, who's that? Are they cool? There's that that honestly that's what I got from this moment. Oh, that's, that's what I got. And I yeah. got I, I felt what how would I feel like if I in an offhand moment like made fun of my dad or my mum or something. Yeah. And then they didn't know it and they say, Oh, is that so are they are they a good person? Are they a nice and I would that's what I felt this time. I crumpled inside a little bit. That um, I never spotted that, but that is oh, that's lovely. That is genuine. I I can't believe that got past me. That is such. It's, it's because the line is genuinely really funny. It's just, but there's something. And so you get there, there is, there is, yeah. I think for I think because how many times that that's been memed and turned into a t-shirt and a bit of art. I, I was a bit blasé. Oh, the lines come up again. And this time I wasn't paying attention to the line. It was the other stuff as well. And for me, the funniest line happens right after this, and it's the funniest line for me in the whole movie. I think I can guess it. It's when Drax has to wear the flight harness and as he jets off into the sky, he yells, Ow, my nipples! That's a nice callback. <laughs> it's, it's not even just the callback. That's a funny line delivered by someone who shouldn't be saying that. Just so funny. Oh my God, it killed me this I, time. I, for a second, I thought you were going to do with the other line, which is, Mantis, look out. <laughs> oh, oh my god that's really good as well he steals this movie Mantis and she's already been hit oh, by something god. Mantis look out he steals it man absolutely anyway back with the film 
As Pito battles with Ego with the rest of the Guardians, Kraglin struggles to pilot Yondu's ship against Ego's attacks. The Celestial slowly bests each of the Guardians and continues to drain Peter, causing further destructions on the planet that Ego planted himself on. Just when all hope is lost, Yondu gives Quill a vital lesson about using his heart instead of his head, allowing Peter to tap into his Celestial powers and fight his father. With Ego distracted, Rocket orders Groot to use this chance to arm the bomb in Ego's brain. Rocket doesn't want to leave Yondu behind, but Yondu realises that not all of them are making it out alive, and someone needs to save Quill. Yondu says he's never done a single thing right in his entire life, but he's going to do this. Rocket hands him a spacesuit and a flying rig, but only has one of each. Yondu accepts his fate. As Groot tells him, he's now become a member of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh, that man. got me as well. That, was, that got me. That, that got, got each me. time because you can see it Tim tearing up as he says it. It's the line. It's the line. I've never done a single thing, single damn thing right in my entire life. So you gotta let me do this. That 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 felt that felt like something you know redemption and all that. Absolutely. Oof. Didn't you say earlier this was his? Re- oh no, someone else said this is his redemption story. This is Yondu's redemption story, almost. Oh yeah, yeah, of course, yeah, because you know he's a child trafficker. He's a ch- <laughs> like he's got a lot to answer for. And okay, <laughs> they give him a line where he says, "I didn't know Kurt Russell was going to kill all these children, yeah. but I was still kidnapping and trafficking children." Um, yeah, yeah. There's a bit of that, but hey. You know, he's Mary Poppins. I'm fine with that. He's like the anti-Mary Poppins in a way. He doesn't help children. <laughs> he traffics them. The anti-Poppins. The anti-Poppins. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Uh, back to Star-Lord, though. Does he have any celestial powers in the comic books like this? Because it feels like they're tying stuff in here that doesn't exist. No, there's, there's nothing. There's nothing yeah. celestial about him. No power. Like, like so. Uh, the during the right at the start of the first annihilation war, he is very severely injured, mm. and um, war doctors, like military field of combat doctors, uh, graft cybernetic implants I- I- into Quill to get yeah. him back on his feet and out fighting again. Um, uh, he gets an eye implant which allows him to see the full uh, energy spectrum and a memory chip in his brain that gives him 100% total recall. It also appears that these implants give him some level of like heightened durability and and, and a little bit of extra strength or something. Um, But then during the second war against the the Phalanx, the Phalanx, the the, the Annihilation Conquests um, story, he is sent on an infiltration mission that requires all the implants to be ripped out of him. Mm. So he... um, he doesn't have he doesn't have any any of those extra abilities. Um, he when he's he's made um, military advisor to the the Kree Empire and special counsel to Ronan, the accuser um, during the, the the second annihilation war, and he gets some cool equipment. The, the, a Kree issued like battle suit kind of espionage battle suit mm. which became the look for the rest of the, all the other guardians get it when he starts the, the guardians of the galaxy and he gets some cool kree submachine guns and explosive ammo and uh universal translator and stuff like that but yeah. but no no powers no no, no powers just six million dollar man or whatever <laughs> briefly yeah briefly for okay. for accumulatively let's say half a war <laughs> half a 
Half oh, a war. That's a, that's a clear measurement of time. Yeah. Half a war. Half a war. Anyway, back to the story. As the planet falls apart, the ship gets ready to take off. Gamora refuses to leave Quill behind, but Rocket hits her with a taser to knock her out, saying he can't afford to lose two friends today. As the ship takes off, Drax screams over the intercom that they have to go back for Quill, but it's useless. The ship takes off as Ego's world falls apart. As Ego brain, Ego's brain explodes and the planet collapses around him, Peter is saved at the last second by Yondu flying in and jetting them both out. Yondu says that Ego might have been Quill's father, but he wasn't his daddy. As, the far, as they fly out of the planet's atmosphere, Yondu tells Quill he's sorry he didn't do any of it right and then gives Peter the only spacesuit space to survive the harsh vacuum of space and says, I'm damn lucky you're my boy. As Peter realises what an important parental figure Yondu was to him, Quill watches helplessly as the Ravager leader slowly succumbs to the cold, empty vacuum of space. That was a real hit in the feels bit, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, it really was. Yeah, they got it just right here. It did without without doing it with like fake sentimentality. They got it right, and it was just so good to see. Bittersweet, yeah. I, I think when 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 something is bittersweet, I don't think that I don't think it's, I think they kind of you drive sentimentality away in that respect. I think yes, and they they they, they got that balance that tone right here. Absolutely. So he ain't his father, but he is <laughs> his daddy. Who is Star Lord's father then? Well, Quill's father isn't much of a plot point or anything, really. Um, We've reached a dead end with this fact, Will. There's nothing to say here until 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 right before the movie comes out, 2013. Here we go. There's the catchphrase. But but, of the episode. but right before, it's nothing to do with how the movie affected the comics, really. Okay, okay, yeah. But there's a new Guardian series that's launched in 2013, and they decide to make Quill half human and half alien for some reason, and they introduce a little backstory. Um, connecting him to the empire of spartax um he is the son of emperor jason um j apostrophe s-o-n essentially jason uh, um, that also sounds like something from coding a jason response which is j-s-o-n so to me that just sounded like that one person might get that out of all our listeners. I'm so sorry. I, if you, my day job. We're going to do an in. experiment. If you get that gag, get in touch either at Marvel versus or Marvel versus Marvel at gmail.com. I am desperate for that. If there's That's some person in the world that, that, that just me that, referencing that, what I do in my day job, that, that get that understands that. Let us know. Um, <laughs> so yeah, an empire of a of a, an empire of an alien race called the Spartax who were battling the Badoon and he crashed during a war on Earth and he had an, uh, a love affair with Meredith Quill and that's how we got Peter Peter Quill. It's weirdly... like So, in Star-Lord's original origin from a Marvel magazine that doesn't count, it's a 70s thing and it's a bit more airy-fairy and a bit more fantasy-based. Mm. And he is, he is said to be the son of Prince Jason... Prince Jason, the noble, right? And then so they, they, they try to like use an element of that and go, oh, well, way back in that thing that isn't canon, he's he's the son of an, uh, he's a no, he's nobility, he's like the child of a normal woman, and like a, and he, he was meant to be a romantic swashbuckling figure. Mm. That's what Star Lord's kind of original kind of thing was. So he's a normal kid who's actually the swashbuckling heir to. 
uh, uh, the the throne of a of a space world and all that kind of stuff. Prince Jason. And when they redid it, they went, you know, Jason's a weird name for an alien to it have. <laughs> it's a guy from Beverly Hills 90210. Yes, that's Fine. exactly what I was thinking. But I'm not sure it's the name of a... Yeah. So they, they, they made it Jason, and they hoped that helped. That, and I don't think it did. That doesn't sound like any of Superman's relatives. <laughs> um, that being said, though, in DC Comics, um, Jaon Jaons, the Martian Manhunter, his name is spelt like that. Oh. J apostrophe O N N, J apostrophe O N Z, maybe two Zs. I was thinking Carol, Jaon, Kal-El and Jor-El. Yeah, but I'm saying they're on alien. There's an alien use of that in the DC universe that you maybe think of. You can restate the thing you just said if you wanted to. Ah, You had said it already, and I agreed with you. Time is against us, and we're too. Brought up another point, but. We can go back if you want. I don't want to go back. I'm not allowed there. Um, I don't want to go back. <laughs> I want to be a baby. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we're coming up to the final scenes of the film. The Guardians hold a funeral for Yondu, which Kraglin and dozens of Ravager ships attend, acknowledging Yondu's sacrifice and accepting him as a Ravager again. The horns of freedom sound and the colours of Ogard light up his grave. Gamora tries to convince Nebula to join them and help save endangered girls across the galaxy, but her enraged sister is still dead set on killing Thanos. Gamora and Nebula finally reconcile. Gamora hugs Nebula, apologising for what happened when they were young, and says that she will always be her sister. During the funeral, Rocket realises that even though Yondu tried to push his family away, they were still there for him in the end. Gamora finally admits that there is an unspoken thing between her and Peter. The Ravager funeral was just tremendous. It was because you didn't expect it at all. In fact, and now now I look back at it, how did they know this happened? How did the Ravagers know anything? I I I one hundred percent expected it, but yeah, yeah. I think I think word went around or something. They updated. They 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 had like a, an old forum no, message board. Rocket says I called them and told them about his sacrifice, and oh, they said right. they would come. Then, There's a line of dialogue. Okay, I missed that line of dialogue. Great, cool. But I I do like how all these emotional plot points resolve themselves. Yes. All of them. The unspoken thing between... Mm. It, nothing happens with their relationship other than Gamora acknowledges there's an unspoken thing. That's it. I, I they loved, don't do the whole get-together and all that, which is good. I love when they were talking about it and he's referencing Cheers. And Sam and Diane, yeah. Sam and Diane in Cheers. I went, oh, fantastic, because I've watched the whole thing. I love Cheers. Rocket realises this big important lesson that that real family are always there for you. Yep. Even, and even if you try and push him away, and that, that, that he, he kind of hopefully learns to accept unconditional love yeah and then there is a true reconciliation between uh gamora and nebula so it it, it serves it, it it's very well put together this movie even uh drax and mantis have the thing i thought what's the last line like you're not ugly oh you're you're not disgusting yeah just, just on was it you're just not you're not disgusting on the inside or something like that that backhanded yeah. compliment it was just perfect also, that Zune reference made me giggle each time because there was that short lifespan of the Zune. Yeah, yeah. Do you remember that? That was Microsoft well, trying to beat, ish, beat the yeah, iPod. But was, yeah, but I—I yeah. I mean, I had a very off-brand MP3 player at the time, so it never really made it. Didn't you know? Oh, so I had something terrible. I, I remember the software, but I remember having off-brand. I, you know, 
10, 20 quid off eBay. There's an MP3 player. Done. You know, that, yeah. was, that was how I lived my life. And then we have a... Pl- uh, an array of post-credit scenes. This is the most post-credit scenes I've seen in a Marvel film up to this point. First of all, Craglin takes up Yondu's telekinetic arrow and control. It's thing. not telekinetic, but yeah, whistle kinetic. Thank you. <laughs> Sonic controlled, <laughs> sonically powered. You're worse arrow. than me when I'm it comes not. to engineering and stuff. Like this oh, is not engineering. Happen. This is this is um, this is not an engineering podcast. It's a Marvel podcast. I'm on the ball, is what I am. Or just you're just retaining uh, <laughs> hierarchy. Anyway, Ravager leader Stakar Ogard reunites with his ex teammates. The High Priestess creates a new artificial being with whom she plans to destroy the Guardians, naming him Adam. Uh, Groot has grown into a teenager. And a group of uninterested watchers abandon their informant who is discussing his experiences on Earth. Which suggests that all the Stan Lee cameos yeah. are one being somehow. I like right. that. I like that. There's, there's this theory that he's the watcher's <clears throat> informant or something. He's planted there mm. by the watchers, which I like. So Ravager's, Ravager's team, we've got Sliced Alone, Ving Rains, and Michelle Yeoh. And one you've missed. Yes, I know I'll the robot. This is the robot head, played by Miley, we'll Miley we'll Cyrus. Oh, okay, you can do it now if you want. I was okay. going to do it now. Yeah, yeah, Miley well, Cyrus. I'll take that out of my notes then. Shall I take that out of my notes? Oh, sorry. Damn it! Damn it! Damn it! Okay, no, you can <laughs> I just. Thought I've got you. You can repeat it if you want. So this is the thing. There are so many post-credit bits in this that there are so I, I remember hearing about Adam and there's so many little easter eggs and little things to, to know about like what can you tell us Rob from, from your well of knowledge so the, the, the high priestess creating the artificial being mm-hmm. is a reference to Adam Warlock yes um, I've heard about an this. artificial being created in the 70s to be a kind of Christ-like character um, in the 90s he gains a huge resurgence and, and becomes the mortal enemy of Thanos it is Adam Warlock and Thanos. Adam Warlock and Thanos become opposite numbers, and Warlock is like he's like the main character of the Infinity Gauntlet saga. Okay, and it's not a part of the MCU Infinity Saga, so um, it's it's wild and weird. Yeah, so you don't know how he's going to um, fit in later when they bring him into it properly. Well, he's definitely in the next movie. He's been cast in Volume Three. Oh, um, okay. He does have a life beyond. Mm, well, this is assuming that Thanos stays dead in the MCU. We oh. don't know. He does not in the comics. But Warlock becomes a massive part of this new 08 Guardians of the Galaxy team. I really hope they don't do Star-Lord. They don't do a Star Wars episode 9 and just go for some reason Thanos came back. <laughs> <laughs> so Sliced Alone and the other Ravengers are all classic Guardians of the Galaxy members. So Sliced Alone is Starhawk. Ving Grames is playing Charlie 27, who is one of the originals. He's from a, a soldier from Jupiter who's genetically engineered to be strong enough and big enough to withstand the heavier gravity. Mm. The, the the shiny crystal character, played by Michael Rosenbaum, young Lex Luthor, mm. is Martinex, who is uh, engineered as a crystal being to survive the extreme temperatures of Pluto. Michelle uh, Yo plays Alita Ogord, who you hear Sliced Alone reference when you join his conversation partially mm. way back on that world they're on. 
He's talking about Alita. Now, in the comic books, Alita is also Starhawk. Right. So both Stakar and Alita share the same powers and the same body. Wow. One of them gets to be Starhawk, and the other one is off in limbo, and then they'll switch places and minds and stuff like that. They are also siblings by adoption, and then they share a body, and then they fall in love, then they have children, and then they share a body again. Gross. <laughs> I, do not, I do not stand for that. Yeah, it's a bit odd. Um, the big red dude who casts a magic spell, we mm. see, is Krugar. He is the Sorcerer Supreme of the future. Um, ah, okay. He was Doctor Strange's apprentice, and succeeded him as Sorcerer Supreme, lives for thousands and thousands of years, and in, in the Guardian's future, he wears the Cloak of Levitation, the Eye of Agamotto, and, and all of that. Um, and the talking head, is which is Miley Cyrus, is allegedly meant to be playing the role of mainframe. Okay. Um, now, in the Guardian's future, mainframe is an AI form that is essentially what the vision becomes after thousands and thousands of years. There we go. Put to bed. Guardians of the Galaxy, volume two. We've digged into all the trivia and the history of these incredible characters. Um, well, I'd, I'd love for you to give us now your final thoughts from a movie perspective on this film. Oh, where do I start? I mean... For as a whole, it takes what made the original great and just runs with it. In my opinion, uh, I really do prefer this to the original. I mean, the original was such a fun movie, and this just goes, "Hey, we're going to be fun, but we're going to break your heart at the same time. We're going to get you in the feels." The humor is pitch perfect in places. Like I've watched this numbers of a number of times now, so many times, and I'm still laughing at jokes that I've either forgotten about or see coming. And I, but I still laugh. Uh, of course, brilliant soundtrack. When I saw this, it was the summer of 2017. And I think I was playing The Chain by Fleetwood Mac on repeat because that song gets used so well. It was also, on a side note, it was weird that for once they used the main bit of the song rather than the Formula One theme bit that everyone knows, the bass bit that, come, that kicks in at the end. They were using the, the lead-up section of the song, which works so well. Also... The best use of Cat Stevens in a film since Harold and Maud. If you've ever seen Harold and Maud, it's a great film. But that bit's at the end where they play, uh, I forgot which cat seat, is it Father and Son, I think it is Cat Stevens. It's just, it's, it strikes so well. I mean, uh, thematically so, but musically it fits the scene incredibly. And I think James Gunn really finds his feet with this film. It feels like the next Marvel film, uh, but also feels more like the next James Gunn film. And when you watch, say, The Suicide Squad, it makes that link so much clearer. You can now see his style when he does this kind of film. And as I said before, so much heart here. It strikes right in between the action and the humour. You get little tender moments of emotion that fit in just right, in a way that doesn't immediately take a right turn in an awkward way it really does it well also visually stunning visually stunning film things pop out more so than any marvel film everything feels vivid and exciting like a comic book even the slow motion scenes work incredibly well so both this i on, on a last note <laughs> i'm gonna anger people 
both this and the previous film were the new Star Wars films that Episode 7, 8, and 9 failed to be. Big words from our, our, our movie expert, Mr. Will Preston. Um, reading this uh, for this episode, um, I cannot recommend it any more than repeatedly saying it's my, one of my favourite Marvel runs of all time. The Guardians of the Galaxy series by Abner and Lanning. It sometimes might be called um, Guardians of the Galaxy 2008 if you're on Marvel Unlimited, the app. And one of my favourites when I was a kid, and still I still favourite now and holds up today. I think it's a lot of fun. Um, it might only not might only it, it might mean a lot more if you kind of are, are forget that it's fun. It's Guardians of the Galaxy by Jim Valentino from the 1990s. It's just packed with fun ideas uh, and futuristic versions of cool Marvel characters. You might not know all the cool Marvel characters, which is what I was trying to kind of caveat at and say. Like, maybe it doesn't mean as much, but I think they're all major characters, really, mm. um, except for Wonder Man. Um, I've always loved that series. That's a, a, a great one. Please, please, please do not get your comic books from Amazon. They are they don't pay terribly well. They drive prices down and make it very hard to sell comic books in a proper way, and they're not, not good at all for comic book shops. There will be local comic book shops in your area or available online. You can still get comic books delivered to your door and pay on a credit card or a PayPal nice and securely. You will have to wait a little bit longer than like two days that you get it from Amazon, but you'll still get a great comic delivered to you, and you'll be supporting the comic book industry. Also, don't forget to check out the Marvel Unlimited app. It's a very, very cost-effective way if you're able to read comics on like your phone or your tablet or whatever. Um, anything but Amazon is what we're trying to say here Hashtag anything but Amazon And on next episode We're doing something we've been talking about For a long long time and not got round to it It's time to go a bit more dark A bit grittier Will A bit more urban We're going to tackle Jessica Jones It's going to be I'm really looking forward to this Very excited about that Head to offworldtees.com Slash mvm to get hold of the official Marvel vs. Marvel merchandise only available for June and July. Offworldtees.com slash MVM. Thanks for listening to Marvel vs. Marvel. Please take the time to like us, rate us, subscribe, leave us five stars and a great review. Why not recommend us to a friend who loves Marvel? Head over to patreon.com slash marvel versus marvel for bonus content and for official marvel versus marvel t-shirts head to offworldtees.com slash mvm <laughs> <laughs>